Hi there and welcome to a special edition of Power Play. I'm Vashi Capellos coming to you from Ottawa this afternoon where all eyes are focused just behind me on Parliament Hill. In a few minutes from right now, Dominic Barton, Canada's former ambassador to China, will be on the hot seat on the Hill, grilled by members of Parliament about contracts his former company was awarded by the federal government. Uh, I want to show you now uh, some pictures that we have. Dominic Barton just arrived actually at committee uh, here in Ottawa. I think we have that tape. We can roll it for you. Uh, he was asked questions by reporters, but uh, for the Are most part Canadians declined to answer. But for the sake of transparency, what do you have to say to Canada? What message do you, you like to convey? You're going to hear it in the room. Did your relationship with Justin Trudeau help McKenzie in any way? No. There's, yeah, there's one answer. Uh, Dominic Barton, Canada's former ambassador to China, saying that asked whether or not his relationship with the prime minister helped things or helped his company in the awarding of those contracts. And he had a pretty specific answer there in saying no. He also indicated uh, on other questions that he got from reporters as he walked into that room that they would find out the answer, that they would be able to hear what happens in the room. That testimony, those questions directed to Mr. Barton, is expected to start at 4.30 Eastern in about four minutes' time. Let's set the stage, though, with our front bench panel to talk a little bit about what we can expect and what to watch for. With me this afternoon, former Chief of Staff to Jim Carr, Carl Carlene Varian. Carlene's an Associate Vice President with Suma Strategies. Former Alberta MLA and Cabinet Minister Gary Marr is here. He's the President and CEO of the Canada West Foundation. Former Communications Director to Jagmeet Singh, Melanie Richet, now works at Ernst Cliff Strategies. She's here as well. And so is the Global Mail's Ottawa Bureau Chief, Bob Fife. Hi, everyone. Good to have you uh, with us for this special edition of Power Play. Bob, I'm going to start with you because you've been driving a lot of the coverage, both the Globe and, and Radio Canada, really. Why is this a big deal? Well, it's a big deal because it goes to liberal connections and whether they got $100 million of public money, more than $100 million of public money, uh, after uh, they brought Mr. Um, Barton in, who was a, a friend of the Prime Minister and a friend of the uh, Finance Minister, they brought him in as a $1 a year ma uh, man to provide advice to the government. And lo and behold, by the end, by the time he walks out of government, uh, uh, out of, uh, as ambassador, as head of, of, of McKenzie, but also as, as he left as our envoy to China, uh, he was, uh, McKenzie ended up with more than $100 million of contracts. McKenzie, by the way, is the, cat, the Lamborghini of consulting firms. They charge more money than any other consulting firm. And not only that, the other issue is the ethical conduct of this company, from turbocharging right. uh, opioid cells that led to the deaths of uh, tens of thousands of Americans, but also Canadians as well, uh, to, um, you know, their double dealing in terms of corruption charges in, in South Africa, their work with Saudi Arabia, their work with, the, uh, with China's Communist Party. I mean, it's, 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 it is, a, this company's got a, a trail of black marks against it. And they get these contracts. Why? Well, it seems... It's because of a, potentially because of a friendship with the prime minister. Yeah, that's the allegation, Carlene, right? And that is really the, the politics of, of what will be the focus today. I, I imagine, and we've heard some politicians indicate today who will be on the committee, th they're not looking to, um, you know, berate Mr. Barton, but they are looking to figure out if there is a connection between, you know, what that friendship basically got him and, and his company, if anything. That's the accusation. Uh, how much do the liberals have at stake today? 
Well, if you're Dominic Barton heading into this committee, I think you are probably thinking very carefully about what's in your own your your best interests here. Um, obviously, for the committee, the target is not so much Mr. Barton himself as the information that he may be able to provide that will allow opposition members to. Uh, point out flaws in the government's approach or, or how they may have handled things um, that violate certain codes or terms of ethics. Um, so in that sense, uh, I think that you will probably have many staffers in the prime minister's office watching this hearing very closely today, taking careful note of what Mr. Barton says, tr checking it back against what they believe to be true and what they know about the situation, um, and, uh, and probably just sort of sitting on the edge of their chairs, hoping that they get out of this without any headlines or clippable moments that the opposition will use tomorrow in question period. That won't happen. <laughs> <laughs> Bob's already writing his story for tomorrow. Um, uh, Gary, I wanted to get you to weigh in as well. And just to, to pick up on what Carlene and Bob said, you know, Dominic Barton, rather, is a is a character that many Canadians are familiar with. Like, he, he played a big role as Canada's ambassador to China, specifically in overseeing the efforts to bring back Michael Kovrig and, and Michael Spaver, uh, as well when he was the head of the council that was advising, and that's what Bob was referring to as a supposedly $1 a year thing, advising Canada's government on how to grow the economy. He played a big role there, too. Why uh, is it important that he's testifying today, and what will you be watching for? Well, I think one of the things to note is uh, something that was reported by uh, the federal government itself, that uh, during uh, the time that the Harper government was in place, uh, the total contract values of uh, given to McKinsey was about $2.2 million. Uh, now it's ballooned up to $117 million. Let's put that in context. I mean, the total amount of contracting out of services by the federal government is in the range of $16 billion. That's also ballooned up from 2015 uh, to the, the current year, it, it's, a, it's an eye-watering amount of money. Um, and uh, I, I think that there are appropriate times for contracting out of services, but Canadians need to know what the transparency of those contracts are and what kind of value we're getting out of them. And at the same time, since 2015, the size of the uh, federal civil service has grown roughly 10,000 people a year um, you know, now it's uh, up, up to about 380,000 people. One wonders why you need contracting of, uh, for certain kinds of services when at the same time uh, you're increasing the size of your civil service. So there are a lot of questions that uh, I think will be asked in the committee today. And I think Canadians need to know um, that they're getting value um, for, uh, for the services that are being contracted for. Yeah, to be fair, Melody, I should point out that the government has tasked two ministers with looking into that very question. Mm -hmm. But that happened once the stories came out about the McKinsey contracts more specifically. Uh, if you're the federal government and you're the opposition and you're you know, sitting down to tune in to this testimony, which is slated to get underway any minute, specifically honing in on what you expect to hear from Dominic Barton, like what are you watching for? I think a little bit of what was mentioned, we're looking for if there's any information that comes out that hasn't come out in reporting or that won't be readily available by the stuff that the government's going to be making public. Um, of course, it'll be a, a chance for the opposition to try to score some political points in that committee as well, especially if they're looking at uh, Dominic Barton as a, as a way to point to the, the Trudeau Liberals that they're either doing something or not doing something properly. Um, but, but to other people's points that they've already made um, previously is I think the, the most important thing is to 
um, get some transparency for Canadians, um, but also to make sure that these contracts, contracts aren't necessarily a bad thing, but if they're not getting the value for the money. Okay. Uh, Sorry, I have to no, interrupt. No, I apologize, but Mr. Barton has just started speaking, so we're going to take a listen in. Live Dominic Barton at a House of Commons committee investigating contracts awarded from the federal government to McKinsey & Company. Let's take a listen. It's where I spent 10 years. I then moved to the South Korean office and stayed in Asia for 12 years. In 2009, I was elected Global Managing Partner, in which role I served until 2018, having held three terms. As Managing Partner, my role did not involve the origination or oversight of paid engagements between the Government of Canada and McKinsey's Canadian team. It has now been over three and a half years since I left McKinsey and sold all of my shares. It has been more than 25 years since I was regularly involved in McKinsey's Canadian consulting engagements. I'm not a partisan. I'm not a member or supporter of any political party in Canada. Je ne suis pas un partisan. I do believe, though, in giving back to Canada. I've been an unpaid advisor to different Canadian governments a number of times. For example, in 2010, I was among a number of Canadians advising Finance Minister Flaherty, including attending a two-day retreat hosted by him. In 2013, I was asked by Prime Minister Harper to serve on the Canadian Advisory Committee on the Public Service, which I did for two years. In 2016, I was asked by Minister Morneau to chair his Advisory Council for Economic Growth with 13 other Canadians. I believe the Growth Council did important work for Canadians. Its recommendations included building more Canadian infrastructure, speeding up approvals for resource projects, cutting red tape, attracting foreign talent and capital, unleashing key sectors such as agriculture, and providing the basis for reskilling Canadians to deal with technological change. In July 2018, I announced I was retiring from McKinsey and began to build my next chapter, which included public, private, and foundation board roles. To support my wife, Geraldine, and her career, I moved from New York to Hong Kong. In August 2019, I was asked to become ambassador to China, where my primary mandate was to secure the release of Michael Kovrig and Michael Spaver. I then had to resign for more than a dozen roles I'd recently taken on as part of my post-retirement work. I want to make three quick observations that I hope will be helpful. First, I want to be clear that I had no involvement whatsoever in any awarding of paid work to McKinsey by the federal government since I relocated to Asia in 1996. In joining the public service as ambassador to China in 2019, I underwent a thorough conflict of interest process with the Ethics Commissioner to ensure that my prior roles with McKinsey and elsewhere would not conflict with my public service obligations, and that included a full proactive recusal that screened me from dealing with McKinsey and, of course, any decisions made by the federal public service relating to McKinsey. Second, federal procurement work involves a structured process. The procurements are not evaluated at the political level, but by civil servants. Of the public sector engagement since 2015 reported by the media, McKinsey has publicly stated that the vast majority were the result of publicly tendered competitive requests for proposals, independently evaluated by public servants based on objective point-rated technical and pricing criteria. The rest, the rest were through a national master standing order, which also follows a rigorous procurement process. Consultants are often selected by governments and the private sector and social sector because they are able to provide specialized expertise innovation and insights from global experience, advice that is objective and independent, flexibility to help when and where 
needed without carrying those same costs at other times, and a deep bench to allow analysis to be completed quickly. It's also important to separate the work of McKinsey from the times that I, as a private citizen, sat on several advisory councils as a volunteer at the request of Prime Minister Harper and Ministers Flaherty and Morneau. Those advisory councils made recommendations to elected officials. Sometimes they took them, sometimes they didn't. In these instances, advice came from a panel of volunteers convened by the government, not from McKinsey. I chaired the Growth Council, and McKinsey supported the Growth Council's work by providing data and information to help the Council on a pro bono basis. Third and finally, I will note here that the National Post recently reported that in the last full fiscal year and in March 31, 2022, the Government of Canada spent at least $22.2 billion on external consultants, of which McKinsey contracts represented $17 million. I appreciate your invitation today and, and look forward to taking your questions. Merci. Thank you, Mr. Barton. Colleagues, before we start uh, for this meeting, uh, we will be holding everyone precisely to our allotted time, so please keep that in mind. Uh, Mrs. Cousy, we'll start with you for six minutes, please. Thank you, Mr. Barton, for being here today. Would you consider yourself a friend of the Prime Minister, the current Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau? I have I, no. I, I consider myself having no. I, I'm not a friend. I have a professional relationship. When did you I, first excuse meet? Excuse me. Can I finish, Mr. Chair? Sure. I, so Briefly. I, re I respect him. I think yep. he respects me. I don't have his personal phone number, okay. and I haven't been in a room alone with him. Okay. Never been in a room alone with him. Yep. All right. When did you first meet the Prime Minister? And when I'm referring to the Prime Minister, I'm always referring to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Trudeau. When did you first meet him? I, I think I met him in when actually in 2013. Uh, when I was actually going up to meet... Before he was elected. Before he was... Yeah, okay, going up, you know where I was going is to see uh, Mr. Flaherty. And I was in the elevator and someone introduced him to me and said, this is the, I, this is Justin Trudeau. I didn't know what he looked like or what where he was. So I was going to see Minister Flaherty. Okay, did you elevator. ever meet with the Prime Minister or members of his staff while he was leader of the Liberal Party before the 2015 election I outside of that, that meeting? Not. Okay. When did you first communicate with Justin Trudeau after he was elected prime minister? Uh, it was I, it was in Davos uh, when I was requested by the government to host a breakfast so he could meet other international leaders. That's that's when I met him. Okay. Um, so he initiated. All right. And when is the first time you communicated with the prime minister's office? I I can't. It was during. It was actually with the growth through the growth council. With Minister Morneau, that's where we would have the. That's when we would have our meetings uh, with the, with the Prime Minister, and they were they're actually a handful. All right. Um, how many times did you meet with Justin Trudeau after his election as Prime Minister in 2015? Would you say uh, a dozen times? A dozen times. Okay. So you would say, and where did these meetings take place? Uh, they took place in his office. Okay. And who initiated those meetings of the twelve? Would you say? Can you allot yeah, uh, uh, He 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 requested updates on the Growth Council, and I was with Minister Morneau when we would have those meetings. So okay, and that was the sole people. subject of those meetings, the Growth Council, only the Growth Council. The Growth Council, yeah. Okay. How many times did you or McKinsey meet with staff in the Prime Minister's office after his election in 2015, I, would you say? So you said a dozen for you. How many for other staff uh, in McKinsey uh, other than yourself? I, I, I would be surprised if any of them did. 
I certainly wasn't aware of it. Oh, okay. So you're you're not sure if any other, would you say any of the other uh, McKinsey staff members met with the Prime Minister, anyone in the Prime Minister's office uh, after that time? I honestly have no idea. Okay, that's interesting. Thank you. Um, you helped arrange for Justin, as you mentioned, or excuse me, the Prime Minister to meet uh, many world business leaders at the World Economic Forum in Davos, as you just made reference to. So he initiated that meeting. Yeah, the Prime Minister's office initiated the meeting. Okay. Who did you introduce the Prime Minister to at the World Economic Forum in 2016? I can't. I, I, I tried to grab whoever I knew what might be available. It's very busy It's a, it, it, because it was done very much at the last minute. It was kind of, can you organize a breakfast? I said, uh, people are busy. So I, I can't remember. Okay. People... Are you aware of any contracts that would have come out of uh, the introductions that you made at that no. time? I can I, can I tell you something that they they were doing a favor to come there. There was not an interest to do contracts. That was nothing to do with that. Okay. Would you consider yourself a friend of uh, Christia Freeland? I knew Christia Freeland when she worked at the FT, so I knew her from before. Uh, so I did I did know her. Okay. Uh, um, so you knew her before. So what year would you say you met her? I can't remember. It was at a FT conference where she was moderating. Okay. Was, was this was prior to 2015? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, and when was the first time you communicated with her after the 2015 election? I can't recall. It's a... Okay. How many times... She's not someone that I would be talking to regularly. Oh, okay. That's, that's interesting. How many times um, have you met with her, would you say? Um, eight. Top Eight. ten. I don't know. It's okay. Like, and what were the subjects of those meetings? Please. Well, the one, the they were often they, the the first the, the meeting I recall was when she actually convened a dinner at her house in Toronto. At her she, house, okay. Where she invited twelve other people. Ian Shugart was Who the else? Ian Shugart was there. There was someone from the Globe and Mail. I can't okay. remember his name. Um, the, uh, Janice Stein was there. Uh, I think the former clerk. I uh, can't remember his name, but he, you know. How many it, times did you or McKinsey meet with uh, Freeland staff, please? I, I have no idea on McKinsey because I, I wouldn't be in those meetings. It's not of interest to me. I, I would, I, if I was meeting, it was on her request. Okay. Um, you know, that's very interesting because you're, what you're painting here, Mr. Barton, is not a close relationship. Yet I have here a quote from the Prime Minister at Davos where he said, I'm talking about Dominique Barton, the global managing director for McKinsey & Company. When I went to the Economic World Forum in Davos just a few months after having been elected, I had the privilege of meeting a number of world, the world's business leaders. Who set that up? Dominique Barton, you, sir. I met the leaders of major corporations from around the world. And the one thing they all had in common... They all knew Dominique. I came to appreciate, maybe even envy, Dominique's contact list. So we recruited him. Bill Morneau and I offered him a dollar a year to chair the advisory council on economic growth, and he agreed. See, not such a smart businessman. I don't think anyone can argue we are not getting our money's worth for Dominique. In fact, it's probably the best dollar the government of Canada ever spent. Dominique is modest, accessible, curious about the people and the world. Uh, for all he has accomplished, ridiculously humble. That, sir, sounds like a quote from someone who you know quite well and who knows you quite well. Thank you very much, Mr. Chair. That was exactly on six minutes. Thank you, uh, Mrs. Cousy. Mr. Housefather, please, for six minutes. Thank you very much, Mr. Barton. Thank you for being here voluntarily today. Uh, I appreciate it very much. And, uh, and I want to start by saying that this committee had undertaken a study in outsourcing. And it would be, I think, a very valuable study to understand whether we spend too much money in this country on management consultants or other uh, forms of uh, you know, contractors outside the civil service. And we should be doing that. 
There's been allegations related to McKinsey's activities abroad, and I'm sure you're going to be asked about that today. And I think, again, one of the policies the government of Canada should be looking at is whether or not companies alleged to have committed misconduct abroad, certainly if they've been convicted, should not do business with the government of Canada. But that's not why you've been brought here. You've been brought here because there's allegations being made that somehow there's an untoward relationship that has gotten McKinsey business through you as has been characterized many times by conservatives here and in the House of Commons, you being a close personal friend of the prime minister. So I'm going to re revisit the first question Ms. Cusey asked you. Mr. Barden, would you consider yourself a close personal friend of the prime minister? No, I'm not a close personal friend of the prime minister. Would you say he's one of your five best friends? <laughs> no. One of your 10 best friends? No. One of your 25 best friends? No. One of your 50 best friends? No. Do you have his personal phone number? I do not. Do you and the Prime Minister exchange birthday cards every year? No. Birthday presents? No. Do you and your wife go out to dinner with the Prime Minister and his wife? No. Do, do, your, you know, do your kids socialize? No. Do you exercise with him? No. Have you ever, outside of a business relationship, had social contact with the Prime Minister? No. Okay, so let's put aside the idea that he's your close personal friend. It doesn't even understand. Like you, you mentioned the Conflict of Interest Act, which you obviously went through when you were named ambassador to China. You would be aware of the definition of a friendship within the meaning of that act. Do you believe you even meet the definition of a friendship under the Conflict of Interest Act? No, I'm not a friend. Perfect. Okay, so let's move to something else. While you were in your very prestigious voluntary roles, which again, I think I appreciate, and I think all Canadians, regardless of their political party, appreciate you serving the country under successive prime ministers and volunteering your time. Did you ever lobby the prime minister, Christian Freeland, or anyone in the prime minister's office for business for McKinsey? I did not. Do you, uh, do you believe that there were discussions by others at McKinsey inappropriately lobbying for business? I don't. There's a very strong set of practices and rules uh, on that. I had no interest on the McKinsey relationship. I thought this was giving something back to Canada. I, it was an honor to be asked. It's an honor to be asked when, a, when a, a, a minister or a prime minister asks you to do something. I think as a Canadian, you do it. And I was honored to do it. And I, I worked my tail off on doing that. It was zero to do with anything to do with uh, contracts or things like that. Zero. And one of the interesting questions I, I, you know, I was looking at is the McKinsey business with the government increased rapidly 2019, 2021, when we're talking about the 115 odd million dollars. And I'm not giving an exact figure for anybody who's, you know, the, the, the you know, the, it seems to me that almost all of that business occurred in the last three years after you were appointed ambassador to China and left McKinsey. So let me also understand but when you left McKinsey, you sold your shares in McKinsey, correct? Yes. You no longer profited from any contract that McKinsey would have received from the government of Canada or anybody else? Nothing. And did you misuse your position as ambassador to somehow lobby for business for a company you no longer were associated with and didn't profit from? There were extremely strict rules and protocols put in place. I mean, basically, it was excommunicado. Uh, so I... There was, there, there, was, there was very strict processes and protocols that were followed, and people... If there was ever anything that came in, it would go to the deputy head of mission or to the, to the deputy. So as ambassador, I would assume then, anything that came in with respect to McKinsey, any discussions with respect to McKinsey, you were completely excluded from, 
didn't have any part of. I wa that's exactly right. And there were also five others that we put that I actually, uh, three of them I voluntarily put on, even though the Ethics Commissioner didn't think I should. We, I just was focused on what I had to do. Perfect. And, and interesting, you know, the fact that the business increased, if it was true that during the time you were at McKinsey, you had done such a big lobbying of your friends for contracts, you did a terrible job because obviously the business increased way, way, way fold after you left. Yeah, I, I just, I, I don't even care. I, I just wasn't looking at that. I, I would say, though, again, as I looked at it, look at what's happened with the other spend. There's all sorts of different analysis. You need a magnifying glass. It's a lot of money, don't get me wrong. But comparatively to the others, the Accentures, the Deloitte's, the KPMG's, I, I think one should look at that. So oh, I agree. I mean, I, I think, as, as I mentioned the other day, if I had a contract for $100 and the next year I paid that company $5,000, I would have increased my business with that company 50 times over, but it would be a minute amount of money comparatively to a total spend. And the same is true with McKinsey. There's been a drastic increase in McKinsey spending, but it is... A drop in the bucket compared to what some other consultant firms made, which is why we need to look at the larger question. Um, Mr. Chair, do I have any time left? 30 seconds. Uh, 30 seconds. Okay, well, then I, I'll, I'll come back in other rounds, but I want to thank you again, Mr. Barden, uh, very much for being here today. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Housefather. Mr. Blanchard, welcome to OGO. You have six minutes. Merci, Monsieur le Président. Je m'abstiendrai. Oui. Thank you. As long as putting the earpiece in doesn't count for me, doesn't count for my time. I'm not going to uh, ask you what your birthday is, but I do note that you are no longer with McKinsey, and that really is an advantage because you know how you know McKinsey intimately, and because they no longer employ you, you can speak about them actually. So, this is fantastic. I can get some details from you. So, tell us in a few words what a standing offer is. On a standing offer, I've, I've never been involved in the contract, so I'm just reading what I saw it was. Um, so I've actually never gone through a contracting process with the government in Canada. So I, I don't know. I can read read to you what I uh, think it says. Okay, so uh, it's yeah. That's not necessary because uh, the seconds are going by. But it's kind of like saying the prime minister is responsible for everything that's going on in his government. But in your case, you were the big boss of McKenzie, so surely you knew how they worked, and surely you knew how a standing offer worked. But I'm going to ask you a more general question. When you were the head of McKinsey, McKinsey could have given a contract or could have been involved in a contract where constituents don't know what's happening in the contract nor how much that contract is going to cost. And it might end way after everyone who knew about the contract has died. Would you say that's good management practice for a private company or even a government? Could you repeat that again? I didn't understand the question. Well, you see, a standing offer, as we understand it, is something that the public doesn't know about. It doesn't know how much it's going to cost. It's not zero, as the minister might claim. And before that contract even ends, some of those people may have died, for example, if the contract, the standing offer, lasts until 2100. Again, uh, sir, Mr. Chair, I, I haven't been involved in those contracts. I, I don't know. 
Non, mais l'auriez-vous fait, vous, comme yes, gestionnaire Would you, as a manager, let's say, be involved in that kind of offer, in a standing offer, as a client OK, intéressant. Euh, well, vous connaissez manifestement très peu le Premier Now, ministre. Non, obviously, you don't know the Prime Minister very well, if I understand you correctly. You said uh, you would have had trouble recognizing him in an elevator, and yet you were appointed as an ambassador to China. Now, that's a very important position. So, surely you must have had some detailed conversations with respect to what the Prime Minister's expectations would have been of you. Because we know things weren't going well at the time with China. So, what... what What was the nature of those conversations? Didn't that sort of bring you closer together and know him better? Great question. Uh, I want to clarify something. I didn't know who he was in 2013 when I was in that elevator going up to see Jim Flaherty. That's the first time I met him. I, I didn't. I haven't been in Canada since 1996. I don't watch the news when everything is going. So I didn't know who that was. And someone introduced me and said, "This is Justin Trudeau." That's why. That's the first time. Of course, after doing the Growth Council and so forth, I did know who he was and recognize him. In, in the uh, run-up to being ambassador, I, the, what we were trying to, what, what, he, what happened is actually Ian Shugart, who was the clerk, is the one who asked me to help. It wasn't the prime minister, okay. it was Ian. No, but please, I just explain, because what happened is there was no communication with China, nothing happening. It was, you know how bad it was. And, he, and mm -hmm. they were looking for ideas. And I said, let's try a back-channel route to try and get a communication going. And that's the first time I had an interaction with the Prime Minister on that, which is, how would we do it? We'd have to set this up at the G20. There were about six other people in the room. That's the first time we talked about it. Um, and so Ian Shugart was the main person who was the, interacting with me and, and actually trying to convince me to do it. And I'd be very honest, it's, a, it's the greatest honor of my life to do that role, but I did not volunteer to do that. Okay. Uh, So, listen, I don't know Mr. Barton well, so I wouldn't talk about Dominique. I wouldn't be complimenting in public. But anyway, that's what he was doing. Now, 100 million people. There's a recommendation to make Canada strong again. Now, 12.5 million people in Montreal. You came up with all kinds of numbers. Tell me, in those numbers, how many are French-speaking? 12 million. Out of those 12 million, how many would speak French. What do you think about the capacity of allowing these people to integrate into Quebec society when you have a number like that? Because there won't be very many people left over who do speak French if they are right. not so fully integrated. The immigration, the, the numbers that oui, we're oui, trying oui. to get. Yeah. I mean, Century Initiative. Yeah, the Century Initiative. Again, that was a, a private initiative where we were trying to say, let's, Laurier had an ambition for Canada to be the a dominant country in the 20th century, which we're not. And so the hope was we could be. And that's where that came, that's where that idea uh, came from. And I think it's very important how people would be able to integrate. I think they have to integrate into our society. In what language? Pardon? In what language should they integrate? They should, in English and French. It's, we're a bilingual country. We'll be back. Thank you, Mr. Blanchet. Mr. Johns for six minutes, please. Thank you for being here. Um, I guess, you know, when it, back when I was a business owner and I ran a chamber of commerce, we'd do a SWOT analysis, you know, identify our strengths, you know, our weaknesses, opportunities, our threats. 
I, I'm sure you've participated in this uh, exercise many times at McKinsey, and, and we know McKinsey's strengths, that they're able to swing sole source contracts and get money out of Canadians, that their weaknesses that are scandal after scandal. Uh, and uh, we know that McKinsey sees any crisis, whether it be the opioid uh, a crisis or uh, a pandemic as an opportunity. I guess I want to ask you about the T, about the threats. Maybe spill the T a bit about what are the threats to McKinsey when you were there? And who are they? Well, first of all, I, I think that's a very biased SWOT analysis. It's not a very good one. Okay. Um, so, well, what, I guess but, I just want to focus on the threats. What were the threats? What, what were the co competitive co competition that were the for, biggest threats in terms of McKinsey? We've got, there's very, it's a very, very competitive market. There's a, okay. there's, there's Boston Consulting Group, sure. Bain, uh, Accenture. There's a, it's a very competitive okay. market. So, so you, yeah. you, you mentioned a couple. I, I, I also was looking at the numbers and uh, you're right. Last year, McKinsey in, in 2021 got, well, I guess the year before last, $32 million in contracts. Deloitte got $28 million back in 2011 under the Conservatives. Um, they got $173 million in 2021. Wow. Um, so, you know, when we talk about uh, the scale of things, this is pretty significant. Um, in fact, Price Waterhouse Cooper got almost $10 million in 2011. Uh, they got $21 million in 2013, $34 million in 2014, $44 million in 2015 under the Conservatives. So I guess you see where I'm going. Things uh, started back in the Conservative government in the outsourcing, and it got out of control. Now they're at $93 million. So when we look at the overall totals, uh, Deloitte's got half a billion dollars in outsourcing in a, the last decade. Price Waterhouse Cooper, $511 million. Accentra, $211. Ernst & Young, $107. And KPMG, $139. And McKinsey, $68 million, not including 2022. So why do you think this committee is not looking at all of those companies, and you believe that you know some parties really want to focus on McKinsey and you, why are, do you actually think they really want to get to the bottom of the outsourcing issue and how to stop it? Because right now we're seeing millionaires getting richer on contracts off the public uh, tax dollar and when they need services the most. Um, but I think... I think your, your comments speak for themselves. I mean, the, that, my last point was, again, putting things in perspective. I, th I think this it's good to look at the impact and, and what people are doing. I think, I think that the, we should look at the, broad, the whole broad remit. I don't know why the McKinsey is the only focus uh, on them. So, so, so those why do you numbers think, also I guess, I guess the, back to the threats, why do these companies, why are they getting more money than McKinsey? What are they doing? I, Who do I, they know? I have... I, Look, it's like, a, who it's does a, Price Waterhouse know that they, they can have a 400% increase under the Conservatives well, and double under the Liberals? Yeah. Who do they I, know? Again, I, I actually believe that there is a procurement process. I don't think it's about who they know, but it is quite interesting to see the size of the... So you don't think it's a Liberal Tory, same old story kind of thing? Like they're I just there to help their friends and, and I, undermine the public service? I, I don't believe that. Well, I do. So I, I'm going to move a motion uh, at this committee later on to ensure that we expand the scope of this study. Because I'm not here to play politics and just paint one company over another. Yeah. We need to look at the whole scope of this thing. And we need answers. And we need all these companies before this committee because they need to explain how they're getting these contracts. Yeah. And, and I guess, you know, you know, adding to that, I mean, I, what, you know, you talked about giving back to Canada. And, and I appreciate your comments on that. 
What makes you the person the Prime Minister of Canada has to go to for free advice given out of the goodness of your heart? You know, you should ask him because I, I, I've, okay. I've been asked by other countries. I'll just say, and this is where, again, I felt committed. I've worked with President Obama. I've yeah. worked in Colombia. I've worked in the UK. I've worked in Singapore. I've worked in South Korea. For leaders, they ask, they, they just want, they, they want what's, the, what's happening in the world? How are things changing? And so when I, and I've never been asked in Canada except when Jim Flaherty yeah. asked me and that was an, and it was just to understand how the world what's going on okay. he didn't he wasn't asking to say tell me what we should do it's just give me ideas and by the way there were often radically different views in the room so so i it was more in that spirit uh it's something okay. that okay. i I've, I've been used to doing uh and that's and as a canadian i wanted uh, wanted to give something back that, okay. that's why well and i do appreciate your work on, on the michaels you talked about back channeling i think we're all appreciative to see them home we're grateful um, you talk about back-channeling roots. You talk, can you explain about domestic back-channeling? I, I don't know what that is. Well, I, I think that, uh, you know, who, who, how does it that McKinsey can go, you know, from $1.7 million in 2016 to $32 million, literally skyrocketing year after year? What is McKinsey doing? Who does McKinsey... But, but this oh, is oh, again... No. To, to have that kind of acceleration, right? Like, there's no explanation. Like your SWOT analysis, you should also look at what's happening in the market, and you can see from the numbers you just said, there's even more mammoth increases from other firms. There's I think it's less than market; it's more growth. about who, who who their friends are and what their priorities are. I think are. It, we're talking putting, about putting private sector over public sector is what's going on under I think both these talk, governments. I'm talking about facts, and the that's facts. facts. The that's facts. a fact. The fact. They're prioritizing private sector over the public sector. I, and that's what both the Liberals and Tories are I'm afraid are doing. that's uh, time, uh, gentlemen. Uh, Mrs. Cousy for six minutes, please. Thank you, Chair. So, Mr. Barton, going back um, to your claim that you don't have a close relationship with the Prime Minister, I have another quote here, and the quote is, so I have known him for a long time. The Prime Minister knows him well as well. And one of the things that is really important is in his complicated job is to have someone doing it who can pick up the phone at any time and speak directly to the prime minister, speak directly to me. Someone who has that personal personal connection and a personal connection built up over time. Dominique is a person who has that level of trust first and foremost with the prime minister and also with me. I think that is one of the reasons that David was able to be so effective as he was such a, Dominique, excuse me, was able to be as effective as he was in such a close and direct contact with the prime minister and with me. Dominique will enjoy, excuse me, she was referring to David, Dominique will enjoy the same direct access. And that was Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Finance, Christia Freeline, talking about you, your relationship with her and your relationship with the prime minister. Mr. Barton, would you consider yourself a friend of uh, former uh, finance minister, Bill Morneau? No, I wouldn't. Okay, when's the first I'd like time? to, Mr. Chair, can yes. I respond at least to the first comment, or is it just going to be a speech? Well, it, is, it is the member's time. Okay. 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 Uh, uh, when did you first meet Bill Morneau, please? Uh, I met him actually at the beginning of the Growth Council. Okay. Uh, so uh, what year would that be, please? Um, whatever that 2016 2016 okay so after the election and the context of the meeting entirely was the growth council yeah pa paul rochon who was the deputy minister is the okay. one that, i remember he called me in new york and said would you like to be a member of the growth council and i said what is that i don't know what that is and he explained it to me i said i would think about it and he said that the minister bill morneau would be leading it 
Okay. So you never met with him prior to, to uh, him being mm. elected uh, as a member of parliament not, in 2015? Not that I'm aware of. Not, not at all. <laughs> okay. When did you first communicate with Bill Morneau after his appointment to finance minister? Uh, what, during the growth council. Okay. And who initiated the communication? Uh, I think it was Paul Rochon. Okay. And uh, what was discussed in, in, in the initial meeting? What the objective was going to be uh, for the growth council. Okay. And how many times did you meet with Bill Morneau while he was the finance minister? Uh, I don't, um, it was over two years. I mean, that would be I'd probably, again, like a, maybe a dozen, dozen times. A dozen times. Okay. Yeah. And what was discussed in those meetings? The growth council. Okay. Um, how many times did you or McKinsey meet with Bill Morneau's staff? I, I can talk for me. Uh, okay. Just me meeting with him. I, I didn't I didn't meet with his staff. I would meet with Bill Morneau, with, okay. typically with Paul Rochon. Okay. Um, and uh, which staff in his office did you or, Mc, or McKinsey ever meet with? I can't, I don't okay. recall. Did you ever meet with Katie Telford? Yes. Oh, how many times? Similar times as the Prime Minister, because she was usually in the room. Okay. Did you ever meet with Gerald Butts? Yes. How many times? Less because he he'd left, but he was part of the he was part of that group. So when I meet the prime minister, the two of them would be there. Often Bill Morneau, and maybe some other people I didn't know who okay. they Did were. Did you ever meet with Ben Chin? Uh, he yeah, a couple of times. Okay, because um, in Bill Morneau's bo uh, book as well, he quotes: "A month later, I revealed that Dominique Barton, one of Canada's most insightful and successful international business people, would serve as chair of the council. The council itself would be made up of 14 Canadian and international leaders from business and academia, including Mark Wiseman, Susan Fortier, Michael Sabia, Elisa Lin, and Chris Rogan. Thanks to Dominique's role as CEO of McKinsey and Company, the global management consulting firm would assist the council." and assess our current situation and future scenarios, as well as drafting recommendations. I also note that all the members of the council would perform their services for an annual salary of $1 each. McKinsey committed to supporting us on a pro bono basis, working closely with the Department of Finance in what turned out to be a particularly effective partnership. A quote also from Where To From Here, A Path to Canadian Prosperity by Bill Marneau. We developed a number of good ideas and concepts. They included setting immigration targets and expanding the number of scientists available to work on the new developments that could either support existing economic activities or inspire new ones. Mr. Barton, McKinsey and Company provided the work on the economic advisory panel, of which you were chair of all pro bono, as you know. If McKinsey were to have invoiced the government of Canada for that work, how much would they have charged? No idea. Okay. What kind of information did McKinsey become privy to through the work on the economic advisory council? They were providing information. They weren't getting information. Uh, um, did your company have to go through any security or background checks like they would have had to for a government contract? I have no idea. I'm sure they did. Okay. I'm afraid that is your time. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. Uh, Mrs. Thompson, please, for five. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and welcome to the committee, Mr. Barton. And I do want to acknowledge that you're here as an independent witness and certainly that you've served under successive prime ministers. Um, I mean, clearly... Um, I'm reading that we, and certainly part of the, the work of this committee is around a study on um, uh, contracting and, and outsourcing, and I think that's very important and clearly where this is, is very quickly moving. Before I, and I do have questions, and before I move into those, I would like to give you the opportunity to respond to Ms. Cousy's original um, question around the, um, I presume it, it, it's, uh, 
tweet or a, a note from uh, uh, Minister Freeland? Oh, yes. Yeah, so, you know, I can't speak for what Minister Freeland says about that, uh, you know, the, the relationship. I'm telling you about what my, I know what the relationship is with the Prime Minister, and I'm telling you that. It was a professional relationship, and I'm, I'm honestly quite shocked at what I'm reading about in the papers. It's just, it's incredible. Um, he must find it incredible, because uh, it's just simply not true. Um, but it was a professional relationship. It was, there was respect. There were always people in the room, and that's what it was. I mean, I, I, I don't know what a defini I, I don't know what people's definition of that is. So that's the part that I, I find a little, a little disappointing. Thank you, Mr. Barton, and I promise I won't ask how many times yeah. you've spoken to the Prime Minister. I would like to have um, um, or, or, or to learn some of your perspective on transparency and the, the data metrics, because I think you, know, um, you, know, you have worked for multiple uh, governments in other countries, and I'd be really interested. Um, what is it that we need to put in place um, that will ensure we don't end up through successive governments back in a place where outsourcing is this um, challenging and obviously worrisome and when we look at the numbers. Well, I do, I, do, I do think this is where the civil service has to play a role too about what they want and what they find frustrating. My, I, I've had two and a half years in the civil service and I would say that I'm deeply impressed with the quality of people, deeply. Uh, they, they work incredibly hard, have high standards, uh, and they've been overwhelmed uh, in the last five years. There's been a heck of a lot of stuff happening. Um, and so I think the thing is to also ask them, uh, you know, what could, what should we be doing in terms of training? I think the, my personal view is I think the human resources systems are weak. If I'm blunt about it, they're weak in terms of the training, uh, the career pathing, uh, the mentoring that actually goes on. And yet we've, we've got really good people. Uh, so I, I think we should be looking at how we can further develop uh, their roles and what they do to build the capacity. I think there should, you know, the, the, that, that's, I guess, fundamentally what, what I believe. But I, but I think we should involve them because they will see where it is. Ultimately, they're making decisions. Uh, but, I, but I do think the nature of the work has shifted uh, over the last five years. Um, could, you, could you elaborate on that? Sure. I think, uh, first of all, that the number of just the, the, the number of issues that are being dealt with at any particular time. I saw it just from, you know, foreign affairs. You're you're, you're having to move sixty thousand Canadians from different parts of the world. That's not been done before. You know, what, when I was there, in that we established a supply chain for PPE. That it, that's not in the book. That you, you know, you become a diplomat. It's not supposed to say you build a supply chain. We have to figure that out. That was from China. 93% at, at one particular point of our PPE supply came from China. It doesn't ha so that was actually done. Deloitte actually helped. I don't know if Deloitte played a role. I don't, you know, and but it was actually civil servants that were doing that. But then there, were, there are a ton of other issues going on at the same time. So I think there's a huge workload that we need to to look at. I think the speed with which information moves there's not time to be able to absorb and think you're just you're react you have to react very very quickly and so there's not enough time to be able to get ahead for the next issue uh, to to come on and then you have the whole digitization techno this is something that's happening to every organization and customers expect it they they don't they get it from their retailers they expect it from government uh, but we you know frankly have had some quite 
you know, decrepit systems that have to be shifted. That that's a lot of work to be able to do it. So I think we've got to look at some of those elements that's putting the pressure on the civil servants to be able to do their job. And I think that would be a very productive pr process. So in, in that's your uh, time, Ms. Oh, Thompson. Sorry, thank you. Mr. Blanchet for two and a half minutes, please. Briefly then, I'm not going to refer to specific contracts because you seem to have forgotten many details about McKinsey, even though you were uh, the head of it. But I'd like to know if between McKinsey and the Canadian government, were you defining directions uh, in immigration, or what, what exactly were you doing? Uh, two, two responses. First of all, as the head of McKinsey, you don't get involved in contracts. You don't do client work. But for nine years... But you know how they work? What I did was I didn't also work in government. That much. I worked in banking, consumer goods, not in the government process. Um, uh, sorry, your second question I was your second point. But in fact, oh, oh, and the immigrant setting targets. Oui, yeah, sorry. Great. No, that what happens is is the Growth Council recognized one of the levers for Canada being able to be prosperous in the future is labor supply. It was a big gap, and the view was that we needed to increase the amount of immigration that was going on. There was a huge debate within the Growth Council. Fourteen members arguing back and forth. There were some that thought it should be way higher, and there were some in the committee that thought we should be very careful about bringing any more new people. It was it was a debate, okay. and then where it came, then what we did was we made a recommendation, and then it was up to the to the government to decide whether they do it or not. Ça, très intéressant. Well, that, that's very interesting, and this has been said a few times. McKinsey doesn't decide anything. McKinsey just makes recommendations, and. Let's say the recommendation is harmful for Quebec because nothing's being done to preserve a national identity there. Then the Century Initiative is providing advice that the government may use. And I understand that if the government doesn't use it, McKinsey isn't responsible, then it's Justin Trudeau and his government is responsible for a bad decision in choosing your proposals. Two things I would say about, first of all, the Growth Council made a recommendation. It's up to the government to do it. We made some other recommendations, by the way, that they didn't want to do. They said no, and we pushed. Well, they accepted everything when it came to um, becoming involved in other jurisdictions that you may have known. I mean, you know that they shouldn't be involved in provincial jurisdictions and that it's important in Quebec to preserve the national identity. Was that even considered? Did you say, hmm, I'm not sure about that? Answer, please. There was debate, there was debate on that, and then that, there was a recommendation that was made, and then it was up to the government to decide how they wanted to do it. Numbers, where, how, the integration. That's, that that Donc, was over to the government. I'm afraid that's our time. So then it's his mistake. Please, two and a half. Uh, in 2011, uh, there was $54 million in outsourcing. 2015, that had doubled under the Conservatives to $99 million. In 2021, it had gone up fourfold. Now, you've given voluntary advice to the government, um, and you're deeply impressed with the quality of the civil service. So am I. Uh, in any of the advice, did you give any advice on how to stop the out-of-control outsourcing? 
we we actually didn't see that number. That we were looking at how we could improve the average median income for the middle class. That was our focus. So we were looking at macro economic issues. We weren't looking at the effectiveness of government. In terms of uh, you're, you're, I'm sure you're aware that three out of uh, 23 contracts awarded to McKinsey were subject to the competitive process usually required for such contracts that the remaining 20 contracts were sole sourced. For at least 18 of those, a, a spokesperson for PSPC said that this was necessary because it was the only way the government could have access to a type of benchmarking methodology that McKinsey has exclusive rights to. PSPC said these services consist of, quote, functional uh, tools, databases, and expert support to measure their performance against similar Canadian and international organizations in order to identify deficiencies and opportunities for improvement, end quote. Sounds like a whole lot of words just to say, quote, comparative analysis to me. Can you maybe explain why this benchmarking methodology is so unique and why it has the government convinced with absolute certainty without any attempt to invite competition that no other company could possibly provide a similar service? First thing I want to say is I have different numbers than you about those percentages. The numbers I saw from McKinsey was... You, we, the 74% were done in the, in the competitive request for proposal basis and 26% were done with the standing order process where there again is a set of criteria. The second thing is it's up to the government to decide what those criteria is. McKinsey doesn't set that up and the criteria would have to include capability. And I, I might also mention McKinsey's quite an expensive firm. I, I admit that. But that means if you're going to even be on there, you better have something that's distinctive. And so... When I was at McKinsey, we, the, the, the R&D budget for McKinsey was about $500 million a year. $500 million a year. That sounds to, like you're pretty motivated. I mean, getting co government contracts like no, this, you know, it, off the it, taxpayer, it's, it's, uh, it would it, motivate you to it, invest a lot of R&D, especially with the skyrocketing growth in, in uh, contracts. Gentlemen, I'm afraid that's our time. Uh, Mr. Paul Hoos, welcome back uh, to OGO. You have five minutes, please. Merci, uh, Monsieur le Président. <clears throat> Good afternoon, Mr. Barton. I have several questions to ask you. Now, you were the global managing director of McKinsey from 2009 to 2018. Trudeau government came to power in 2015, and then there was this exponential increase in contracts being awarded by Canada, the Canadian government. We want to understand what happened. Now, when you were the managing director, surely, given all the various relationships you had, you're saying no, that these weren't close friendships, but, uh, but and it's true that sometimes people claim to be the friends of others, but I'd like to know what that relationship was with the government of Canada that allowed McKinsey to become so involved with the government as a consulting firm? As I've been saying before, there is no relationship on that. I know it sounds like a good story, but there, there actually was not a linkage uh, between what I was doing and what McKinsey's doing. That's what I've been trying to explain. So. And so you never had discussions with the Prime Minister of Canada or Minister Morneau regarding McKinsey's services, regarding what services they may be able to provide to help the government and the departments that were experiencing problems. You never had that kind of discussion? 
I never had those discussions. Just let me put things in perspective. McKinsey is a very large firm. The work that's going on in Canada is very small. And my objective was not to do have anything okay. to do with that work. That was up to the Canadian practice. So the, I, had, the, I had no interest and I had no conversation. All right, then we're going to move away from personal interests and we're going to talk about McKinsey. There are a lot of questions surrounding that firm, what kind of advice it provides to other countries, for example, like Saudi Arabia. Here in Canada, there are budgets for uh, immigration, public services, border services. In Canada, there are problems within those departments. And what we don't like seeing is that McKinsey develops policies, develops policies for the federal government, and then we end up with ministers announcing a plan out of nowhere, and we realize it's come from you, but we don't know and we can't find out exactly how that plan was developed and whether the public service is able to even implement what you're proposing. Let's take immigration, for example. The plan came here in November. We found out that there would be 500,000 uh, new immigrants. We knew that was one of your recommendations, but uh, is that the usual way of proceeding to provide these recommendations? The government just takes it the way it is and does exactly what you say? Mr. Chair and Sir, that, as I said in my opening statement, we did not make policy. That we, There were recommendations that came from the Growth Council to the government to decide what they wanted to do. And as I said, they rejected a number of those, of those ideas that we had. It was then up to them. That 500,000 did not come from the Growth Council. That's higher than what the Growth Council said. It's higher. So we, we didn't have anything to do with policy. And the other thing I should make clear, you know, that was the Growth Council. There were 14 people. I was the chair, but all those people had input to it. They were people from civil society. They were people, there were academics. Okay, so I, I okay. just want to be clear. It's so not... Well, then let's try and be clear. What would justify $24 million on the part of the federal government being given to McKinsey for uh, the, uh, the Immigration, Refugee and Citizenship? Department. What kind of information would McKinsey be giving to the government for $24 million? Can you give us an example? I, again, I wasn't involved in any of the work. McKinsey no, is going to Yes, but you worked with them for 30 years. I'm going to have McKinsey come here, which is good, and ask the team that was working on that, because I, I honestly have no idea. I wasn't involved. Okay, Well, let's not speak specifically to that contract then. Let's just take an, an example of recommendations you give to governments. Can you can you give us one generally? Obviously, this is confidential information, but what kind of information or advice would you be giving? You do you develop structural policies? Do you how do you work with governments? What what is it you give them? McKinsey never provides policy advice. They're executing what government wants to do. So, just to give you an example, operations would be one. Lean operations. How do, there's a anything to do that involves a lot of processing. It could be, you know, visas, it could be passports, it could be, that's like running a Toyota factory, if you will. And so there's experts in lean manufacturing and operations. That's an area where you could be doing it. A second one would be digitization of the business. How do you move from paper to the electronic side of things? How does that uh, actually uh, work? So those would be two examples of, of work that I'm familiar with in other countries. Uh, okay. But, but I, honestly, I'm, I'm not trying to be a pr difficult. I'm, I'm just 
I think and he, I'm not challenging the McKinsey but that's people. our time, uh, yeah. gentlemen. Thank you. Mr. Uh, Jawari, please, for five. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and uh, well, welcome to our committee, uh, Mr. Barton. And let me start by once again, thank you for coming here voluntarily, as well as the great work you did in releasing the two Michaels. And now I understand helping us with the with the supply chain uh, around PPEs during a very difficult time. Uh, Mr. Barton, can you quickly, 30 seconds, can you define what the role of a managing director of a global consulting firm is? Uh, Managing director of a global consulting firm, which basically has you know 2,500 partners, right? And you ha and your job is basically setting strategic direction. Where do you want the firm to be in 10 years? It is in managing the organization because it's a complex organization. You have offices, you have sectors like you know banking, yep. um, retail, and so forth, and you have functions, operations, marketing. And that's a complex place. And it, then it's making appointments, uh, you know, appointing people uh, into different uh, into different roles. Um, I, I also spend a lot of my time recruiting. Uh, recruiting is a very important part of 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 what, what you know what McKinsey is and where it is. So I was often uh, recruiting. But um, you're not you're involved. That's the level of what you're doing. You're not in the yep, uh, thank you. operations. Yeah. Yep, thank you. Sorry. I appreciate that. Um, just for the record, once again, uh, at what at what year was it that you uh, departed and you divested from all your uh, shares in in McKenzie? Uh, the 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 I finished as managing partner in July one of twenty eighteen. Thank you. And then and then that sorry yeah. then then I I was retiring and everything was gone as of August thirty first of twenty nineteen. Perfect. So. Um, can can you give us a sense of what was the revenue of McKenzie uh, in 2018 and when you fully divested uh, in 2019? We're a very confidential firm, but I I could just say it's $10 billion. $10 billion. Do you have um, any idea how much the revenue from Canada and specifically uh, from the government of Canada, the revenue that was generated from that? I... I Again, with all respect, I love Canada. I'm from Canada. Canada was not yeah. did not move the dial Perfect. anywhere. So, so yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll help you. 2018, the revenue of um, uh, the of revenue of McKenzie from government of Canada was about uh, 3.4 million dollars. So 3.4 million dollars compared to 10 billion dollars. Um, did you have during that time as a managing director? set a strategic way of um, trying to grow the business in Canada and specifically within the government of Canada? No. No. Great. Thank you. So now we know that between 2021 and 2022, which you had completely divested and you're focused on another mission, critical mission in, in uh, abroad, um, there were services around immigration, there were services around procurement, services around defense, um, uh, security, industry were provided by McKenzie. Did you, during your position um, as part of the growth count, uh, as part of the economic growth group, provide any type of facilitation between McKenzie uh, resources or suggesting to the partners to get in contact with the government of Canada, with the PMO, with the minister's office, or with the with the departments. No, I did not. 
Okay. Do you think any of the policy, sorry, any of the recommendation that you would develop, you're very clear on explaining that your role and the, the group of 14 was not to develop a policy, but group of recommendation. Uh, was any of those recommendations uh, in any way could have been leaked to um, McKenzie and McKenzie use it as a way of developing any type of operational, tactical, or strategic uh, initiative to, to be able to secure a contract with the government? No, I mean, again, the, the contracting process is very rigorous. It isn't done on a relationship like, hey, I know you, you go do it. It's a very strict process. It's, a, I, I, it's even tougher than you'd see in many of the, on the private sector yeah. side. So that it, 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 there's competition that's there and there's standards that are actually set that you have to follow. So um, there was not, you know, as I said, I had no discussion whatsoever. I wasn't, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not aware of the work that actually McKinsey uh, was, was doing. Are you currently doing I'm, any? I'm afraid that's Thank your you. time, sir. Thank you very much. Well, I've taken two seconds away from you, but not enough time for a proper question. Uh, Mr. Genuess, for five minutes. Uh, welcome to OGO, sir. Thank you, Chair. I, I found the testimony uh, interesting today because we've heard the Prime Minister uh, speak very fondly about you and personally about you in public, and uh, you told us today that you're not even his friend. You didn't recognize him, but, but he knew you were a Habs fan. Uh, so I wonder if this is just sort of one of those cases of unrequited, uh, unrequited affection. Um, do you know uh, Andrew Pickersgill? And could you tell us what your relationship was with him? Yeah, uh, again, with the, with the Prime Minister, the first time I met him was in the elevator going yeah. to see Jim Flaherty, right? Uh, Andrew Pickerskill, yes, I know him. He's the, he, was the, uh, he was the office manager of McKinsey in Canada. Okay, so what you're telling us you, is that you weren't involved in pitching the Canadian government on business opportunities. Presumably it would have been Andrew's role as the lead on Canadian operations. To lead I, the, that sort I of don't work. know because again, I wasn't involved in any of those. You should ask him. Okay, what role did Mr. Pickersgill play on or in relation to the Financial Advisory Council on Economic Growth? He, he, he what Andrew did was help ensure that we had analysts to be able to provide the data and and the information that was needed for the Growth Council to be able to help in terms of okay. you know what we were looking at. So, so Andrew was working with you on the Growth Council. His work on potentially pitching the government of Canada on uh, on business—that's uh, something you're not aware of either way. I, I just want to note for the committee's sake, and maybe you want to comment on this, that that I've accessed uh, an A-tipped email uh, from a Kevin Dontremont at McKinsey that's pitching the government of Canada on contracts, offering to connect uh, members of the government with. Uh, Mr. Pickersgill, and noting in the course of that email uh, the work that he did with you on the Financial Advisory Council. So, uh, so you may not be the link, but it seems that Mr. Pickersgill, who was both involved in the uh, Advisory Council and involved in being a vendor to the government, uh, was uh, was involved in both aspects of that operation. Do you yeah, want to comment on that? Uh, yeah, comment is I think you should ask him when he's here. Yeah. And what it, the other thing comment I'd make is there then is a rigorous 
evaluation process to look at whether the work would occur or not. Yeah, and we know there's been many cases of sole sourcing, but I I, uh, I think I appreciate that we've established, and Mr. Pickersgill, I think, would be someone uh, worth worth bringing to the committee. Um, uh, Mr. Barton, uh, following the initial invasion of Ukraine by Russia in 2014 uh, and during your tenure at McKinsey, McKinsey continued to work closely with Russian banks and state-affiliated companies, uh, including those that were subject uh, to Western sanctions. Um, uh, the McKinsey was doing work for national defense in Canada and the United States, other Western countries, uh, while it was all, also cultivating a close relationship with authoritarian powers, Russia, China, Saudi Arabia. Can you assure this committee that analysts working for national defense uh, did not also uh, participate in any projects involving state-affiliated entities in Russia and China? Absolutely. Okay. The, the, the conflict criteria in McKinsey for working with, and I have no idea about what was done on the Rus on that on the Russian, what you're seeing on the Russian military side. But what I do know is that there are very strict conflict requirements and standards in countries that you work in, okay. and so McKinsey would have to follow that. Would it have ever happened, uh, for instance, in the United States, that uh, the same analyst did work for Purdue Pharma and the FDA at the same time? I think you should look. I, I don't know. I, I think. I think. Uh, Would that be a conflict of interest if it had happened? I, I think actually, there's very good testimony from Bob Sternfels, who's the current managing partner, to a committee discussing that. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not familiar with that. Well, uh, but I do know you, that you were leading McKinsey it. at the time, though, right? Uh, yes, you led I McKinsey would... through their advice to Purdue. Uh, it was around the time you departed that uh, the, the relationship between McKinsey and Purdue ended, uh, and the New York Times has reported analysts that worked both for the FDA in the U.S. and for Purdue Pharma at the same time. So you're telling us that McKinsey had stringent conflict of interest rules, but you had analysts that were simultaneously working for drug manufacturers and the FDA. Did that ever happen in Canada? Uh, what I would, first of all, I just want to answer that first one. I think you should actually look, please look at the testimony that was given. I, I can, but can you answer the question, sir? You, you, were, you were leading I, McKinsey at the time. When, I, when you lead McKinsey, as I said before, I'm not involved in But this was detail. about your time while you were there, sir. There, there, there are 3,000 engagements going on in every given day. Every given day. I'm not, uh, that's not what I'm involved in. I'm not, I didn't lead the pharma practice. But, but did you, did you set the conflict of interest rules and did you set rules that would have allowed someone to simultaneously well, again, work for I, the FDA I've, and a pharmaceutical company? I, I, because in Canada, if I'm, someone's I'm working afraid, on a project uh, for Health Mr. Canada Genuous, and I'm for a drug that's company, that's a problem. Mr. Speaker. Oh. Sorry. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Baines, uh, over to you, please, for five minutes. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. And, uh, Thank you uh, for making yourself available today to uh, Mr. Barton for and bringing your testimony forward. Um, we heard a little bit. I, I think you you were talking a little bit about the marketplace, and then and you were cut off. I was wondering if you can maybe talk a little bit about that because, uh, with respect to the steady growth of these contracts, like how do you explain the increase? And you were about to say something, but I think uh, that you were cut off. Yeah, what I was saying, it was really around the question of the outsourcing, what's happening. And I, I think we're in a time of immense change and pressure on organizations, not just the government, but also the private sector and social sector. So the consulting industry has been uh, growing very, very quickly. Uh, it, that's that's just the underlying uh, shift that's going on. It's not, it, yes, it's happening in government. It sounds like it's a very large increase, but it's also been happening in the private sector and the social sector. So that, that's what I was trying to get at is there's a, 
there's there's and it again it's things like digitization that's a a one off that ha- actually has to uh, occur the covid uh, situation was led to all sorts of issues for for organizations and i you know all i know is that i think most consulting firms were extremely busy they didn't have enough people to be able to do the work um that that again you should ask others that come in here to talk about it i have i haven't been working there but that was my uh sense of it so so there was a there was a very significant increase in the market uh in the size of the consulting market and and you indicated the the issue around human resources say within government there needs to be more training and and governments may not be able to fulfill the labor pool for the skilled work that's necessary. So we did hear a little bit about this in the last meeting, uh, offering proportional salaries with the private sector, the labor pool for skilled IT workers is already limited, uh, particularly if you consider the government's language requirements and diversity goals. So, you know, this action would intensify the demand based on the needs that you're just mentioning there with the market needs. Uh, do you think this would uh, attract the skills the government needs, or is it more likely to cause private sector firms to increase their wages to retain their employees? So we're, we're, how are we com- in, uh, going to compete well, with the necessary skill set? I, I think we, ha- we have to put uh, more investment in training for the civil service, as I said, to build the capacity, because these are all uh, skills that you can learn, but you, we have to invest in people to be able to do that. That's what the private sector is doing. Um, I remember from McKinsey, a lot of the things that we would be working on five years later, they companies were doing them. If I went to that same company and said, we'd like to do this particular type of service, they'd say, well, we're already doing it. And I think that's the sort of uh, capability building that we need to think about for helping the the civil service with all of these, the scale of issues that are coming up uh, to enable them to be able to to do it. Okay, and then when contracts, say with McKinsey, or what measures are in place to ensure that government information is not shared with other organizations that contract with McKinsey? It's it's very strict rules on on the data side. It belongs to the client and you can't, you know, the, um, the, the, so they're very strict rules in terms of where that is. The data belongs to the company or to the organization and that you're uh, working with, uh, that's a, that's a very strict rule in in the process. Okay, and then uh, do I have much any more time, Mr. Chair? Uh, you have a full minute. Okay, so um, have you ever, or do you know of an instance where McKinsey met with the Minister of Immigration on Canada's immigration targets? I don't. I don't know that. Okay, and. Um, how can government improve access to contracts the government signs with consulting firms? Like, I, I think this perhaps this committee looking at it and doing some um, samples. Let's take a look at a sample of an actual contract and see what happened. How was it? Uh, how was the how was the consultant selected? I w- that's what I would do if I were in here. I would say take five, decide. Let's look at the actual process of who was involved. How many competitors were there? And then let's look at the impact of what actually happened. Did did the consultant, you know, in terms of what they said they were going to do, did it actually happen? And how do people feel? And I would, I'd do a micro look at that, not just looking at the at the macro. 
Okay, now you. that is your time, Mr. Baines. Uh, Mrs. Vinola, please, for two and a half. Merci beaucoup. Thank you, Chair. And thank you, Mr. Barton, for coming this evening. I was taking a look at the Century Initiative and the recommendations uh, that came out of the Council. Earlier, you were saying that the government didn't decide to go to that uh, 450,000 recommendation. But in the under the Century Initiative, that would be 500,000. And as of 2026, the target will be 1.25% of the Canadian population. And what that means, that there would be 500,000 new arrivals. So the government is actually going beyond your, and I'm saying your because you were sitting on the, uh, on the council. So they're going actually beyond the recommendations. And I note that there are many recommendations that came out of the Century Initiative and that are also within the Growth Council's suggestions. So I'd like to know, understand why you, Mr. Wiseman, and Andrew Pickersgill, who helped you, why there is that overlap between the Council and the Century Initiative. I'd like to understand what the links between the two were and why would the government follow and even go above and beyond uh, questionable recommendations when it comes to something that would affect the preservation of French? A couple of pieces to the, the comments you, you've made. One is that the Century Initiative was separate, obviously, from the Growth Council. That was, I think, set up in 2011. There was a group of people that worked on that. Mark Wiseman was a driver of it. And published in 2016. Is good. Okay. Yeah, but it, it started in 2011 is when the Century Initiative started. Um, I know I wasn't actually involved in the day to day, but I did give money to that. I thought it was a good initiative. Um, that's where, I, again, I wasn't in Canada, but I thought it, this is a, I believe, I think it's a good thing. But um, so that, that Mark Wiseman was picked not because he was in the Century Initiative, he was the head of, of the Canada Pension Plan. Right. That's why he was on there. That's everyone brings their own affiliations and views on on the Growth Council. We had a very, as I said, a wide group. There were people on the Growth Council that did not want to uh, increase immigration by very much. Just to say, so there was a debate that actually occurred, and we gave that government. The, we didn't say single point. This is what we think. We said, you know what, the the, the majority of people believe that we need to take it up to 450,000 um, eventually. That was the, but over time, because we want to, as colleagues said, let's be careful about how we have, do we have the ability to absorb them as they go through? That was, a, but we gave a range and said there was also some people that, that were concerned. I'm afraid I have to interrupt you again, oh, uh, Mr. Sorry. Barton, our, our time is up. Mr. Sorry. Johns for two and a half. It goes by quick, these yeah. little rounds. Yeah. Mr. Barton, you're, you're well aware there's a, a toxic drug crisis, an epidemic that's happening in our country. People are dying, people in my riding, people I know. Um, many people's first exposure to opioids is prescribed, you know, when they get a prescription from a doctor. Are you familiar with any of the instances in which McKinsey and Company in both either Canada or the United States advised its clients on how to boost the sales uh, of opioids like OxyContin, uh, whether through communication strategies, media advisory services, or other marketing advice? Yep. On the uh, opioid uh, situation, as I've said, 
Um, I do want to acknowledge where McKinsey has uh, done work on that, particularly with uh, one institution, and that's with Purdue. Uh, so we did work on that. The, the work was lawful. The, the work was lawful, but it obviously fell far short of the standards of what we did. And so I'm, I'm, I've, I've acknowledged that I feel, didn't I just say, I, I feel very badly about that. We shouldn't have done it. But I think there's a difference between that issue, which is a mistake, and saying that we were the architect uh, of, of a broader program. Well, well, I think right now you can look at the, the, the court decision that, you know, uh, that uh, McKinsey agreed to pay $600 million for a lawsuit because of thousands of people that died as a result of cutthroat marketing of opioids. I guess my question is to you, do you think it's appropriate for the federal government of Canada to be giving millions of dollars of taxpayers' money in contracts to a company that was responsible or participated in the, the, the death of thousands of people? Do you think that's ethical? Do you think those are, are values that espouse any government in this country to be doing business with a company with that track record? I, I, first thing I would say is that, um, again, I acknowledge that, and that, that, that there was work done on the opioid side. I, don't, I do not believe you could say that McKinsey's responsible for the Did whole you, piece. So Here's a question so, for you. Yeah. Do you think it's appropriate for uh, you know, a for-profit company to create medical advice that is counter to needs of the uh, public health care system? Just yes or no? Uh, I, I think that what you want to look at is the capability of the firm and what they do and the reputation of McKinsey. You actually, much that's even a that. question like that you, you, you know, yes or no, like just a simple answer. You think it's okay for a company to give advice that's counter to that of a public health care system? In what, in, in what, look, I, I think you're trying to make it a simple question on it. I think that there's, I think many it's aspects. pretty straightforward. Yeah. I'm afraid that is our time. Uh, Mr. Jones, you'll have one more round after this to continue this. Uh, Mr. Genuis for five, please. You, thank you, Chair. So I, I understand that McKinsey is a large company, and I get that as the, the big boss, you didn't necessarily know uh, everything that was happening, every letter that was mailed and so forth. Uh, but you must have known certain things, and uh, certainly you're responsible for the culture that existed uh, at the company. Um, to follow Mr. John's questions, uh, you've acknowledged that something happened that shouldn't have happened uh, with respect to uh, Purdue Pharma. Um, I, I, I would like to know what you think happened that shouldn't have happened uh, and who you think is responsible for that. Uh, when did you first become aware of the work your company was doing for Purdue Pharma? Uh, I, came, I became aware of that work after I had left McKinsey when it was, or actually, I, I was aware of it when I left the leadership role in McKinsey. That's when I did, that's when I heard about that work. So I wasn't, again, that's not an excuse. I'm just saying I heard about it when actually the, there was litigation beginning to occur. That's what, that's when I first heard about it. So you, so you left the leadership role from what I understand in 2018. Yeah. McKinsey started working for Purdue Pharma in 2004. Yeah. Are you really telling this committee that, uh, on a file that literally dozens of senior partners were working on, um, that you as a managing partner had no idea about such a prominent and potentially controversial client that the firm had for 15 years? I've explained before, there are 3,000 client engagements that are going on at any particular given time. 
Right, right but, um, they, but, they, but they weren't selling socks in southern Ontario. Uh, the, the, these, were, these were people that, that, were, that were doing billions of dollars in business uh, that caused the opioid crisis, that invented OxyContin, uh, that, that invented mar- modern pharmaceutical advertising. They were your client for 15 years, and you had no idea they were a client? Did you know any of your clients? I don't know all of them. No, that's that's totally normal. Well, I don't think if, you understand. If you had no idea that you were working for Purdue, then then what did you do all day as managing director? Yeah, well, I, I think you know maybe you should spend some time and understand how a consulting firm works. I uh, I, I would love to understand how McKinsey works because yeah. because right now I'm very concerned. How could you, as managing partner, not know? the name of a client who, by the way, in 2007, pled guilty to misbranding their product. Did someone not at some point think, okay, we're taking on this client that pled guilty for misbranding their product. We're offering to help them sell more of that product. We're making proposals that include, uh, that include paying bonuses to, uh, to pharmacists for overdose deaths, that include proposals to go around traditional pharmacies uh, by creating mail-in pharmacies. All these proposals are coming forward, and nobody thought, maybe we should loop in the managing director, given the reputational implications for the company. That's what happens at McKinsey, sir? That, well, in, in this case, it did. And, and I think that that's, and guess what? The McKinsey's learned from that and figured out what, because it, precisely because what you said, this has been a long-term client. And so the question should be, because there's very uh, rigorous processes about becoming a client, w- whether it should work or not. And I think what was learned from that yeah. is there should have been uh, more challenge coming from, from the pharma practice. The, the, in the pharma practice, there are hundreds of clients in the pharma practice, hundreds so, so I guess practice. one other way to put it is, were you aware of any clients involved in opioid manufacturing? Because, I mean, J&J has, has, has yep. been sued over this. Were, were, were you aware that there, was, that there was a pharma practice? And, and did you maybe know some of the clients but not others? I mean, it, I, you know, I knew some of the clients in there, but the opioid, us being some, anywhere involved in that, I did not know that. And there's other organizations, Walmart. There's many people that have been involved, unfortunately, in this whole situation. Yeah. And that... Bluntly, sir, I just don't believe you. I I, I cannot believe that you led this company as the managing partner for a decade, that you did work for uh, multiple different opioid manufacturers, that you did work for Purdue for 15 years, and and nobody said in passing, like, it's on the record, dozens of partners uh, that were working on these files, and you had no idea they were a client. Like, what what does it mean to run the company? There's 2,700 partners in McKinsey & Company. Right. 27 hundred partners right I, I can't know but, but a, even if you were following the news know. you would have known that McKinsey did work for Purdue I, like it, it was publicly reported on while you were leading McKinsey yeah well I, I would suggest you know you come and take a look and see how McKinsey and other consulting firms are work because I, I don't think you understand yeah. how well, the I, process works I, and I, I will just say in, in, in closing uh, however friendly you are aren't with the Prime Minister one thing you do have in common with him sir is that you don't seem to claim responsibility for anything that happens under you and that is our time Mr. Kuzmirchuk please for five minutes well, thank you, Mr. Chair and uh, Mr. Barton. I want to pick up on a, on a comment, uh, my colleague uh, beside me, um, argument that he brought forward, or observation, I should say, about sort of the comparative value of contracts that McKinsey has with, with the uh, Government of Canada. So your last full year as the head of McKinsey in 2018, McKinsey, the value of contracts, federal contracts with McKinsey was, was $3 million dollars. 
Um, and again, compare that to the $10 billion that a company, uh, McKinsey, brings in uh, sort of globally. Um, and Library of Parliament, uh, in its report analysis, looked at contracts, consulting contracts for b the big six uh, consulting companies, Ernst & Young, KPMG, Accenture, PricewaterhouseCoopers, Deloitte. And when you look at the value of the contracts from 2005 to 2022, the value of the McKinsey contracts is about 3%. So the value of the McKinsey contracts are dwarfed by the contracts that are provided to Deloitte, Accenture, PricewaterhouseCoopers. Can you speak to why that is? Um, why, uh, why, for example, other consulting companies are, are again, providing services at a much greater scale than, uh, than McKinsey? I, I, I don't know uh, about that. I mean, I think it's maybe more fundamental to their practice, uh, you know, that that's, it's critical to what they do. The, the, public sector practice when I was at McKinsey was, you know, five to seven percent uh, of the of a, of a practice. And in some countries, it was nothing. Um, so it's just not a it, it's, you know, if I might say working with the government is difficult, it's more difficult than working with the private sector. And I, I don't that's not about the people. It's just very it's a very complicated process. I think it's that's for good reason in where it is. And so we we have fewer you know uh, you know if you think about the focus of the time and so forth but i it's a good question i think it's a very good question for the committee to ask and it gets to I, your point if i might say which is to broaden it there's other there are other institutions that are doing well or growing or whatever you want to say it why and how does that work uh, and and to your point mr barton admittedly uh, that there there has been a rise in in consulting uh, in terms of consulting contracts uh, for government, especially in 2020 and 2021, that's when you see when you saw the contracts increase. But it increased across the board for all consulting yeah. uh, firms, whether it's Deloitte, KPMG, PwC, uh, Ernst and Young, and McKinsey and Company. And I would even say that uh, the the real raw numbers, uh, the increases we saw, were greater for those companies than in McKinsey. Can you speak to why you think that there was such an increase in consulting services to the federal government in 2020 and 2021? What are some of those forces that the government was trying to deal with? Again, I'm just coming at it from my what I saw. Well, one is COVID. I mean, the amount of effort that had to go into dealing with the problem on the healthcare front, um, you know, it was it was it's, a, it's like a nuclear bomb went off in terms of the scale of, of what's happening. So I think that has to be a chunk of it. As I meant, I I saw a piece of it just with the PPE supply chain that we had to build up from zero. It was a huge effort to to get airplanes to be able to to keep fly. Canadians safe. Yes, to keep at for the sure. end of the day to keep Canadians yeah. safe. So so there was a then I, I mentioned the digitization. This is a new phenomenon, right? It's we're, we're organizations are digitizing themselves. That is a very, that's a complex, heavy duty piece of work that has to occur. That's also uh, happening. COVID actually accelerated that because people couldn't communicate. So you had a, a big advance um, on that on that side. And the other issue is the on the geopolitics and the supply chains. When I think actually with the war, you've got all sorts of challenges as it relates to food security, supply chains, you know, uh, friend shoring, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and that's that's a different landscape than than uh, than we've we've had before. So those are just 
three things I could see. I, I'm sure there are more. As I said again, that the repatriation of 60,000 Canadians, that doesn't cost nothing. And there's not resources to be able to, to do that. I remember on that one getting phone calls to say, please, can you figure out, like, who is the CEO of Air India to be able to figure out how we're going to be able to get people here on the cruise ships? Where does that work? That These weren't relationships that consular affairs would typically have. You know, we, it, it wasn't in the playbook. So there were new playbooks that were be, that had to be built quickly and at scale. And I think that's when you ask for help. Um, and as I said, the organization I worked with when it was Deloitte, um, they were, and again, I'm, it's not to make an advertisement for Deloitte, they were very helpful. And I'm glad they were in the PSPC because they helped organize all the different suppliers that we were looking at, making sure we had Sorry, a quality. Thank you, Mr. Screen. Barton. Sorry. Uh, we're approaching our final round now. Uh, back to you, Mr. Genuess, please, for five. Uh, thank you, Chair. I, I want to just start by uh, clarifying the interactions involving Mr. Pickersgill. So uh, Mr. Pickersgill uh, accompanied you to meetings with the Prime Minister, meetings with various officials, uh, and uh, he was responsible for coordinating the research associated with the work of the Growth Council. Is that correct? Uh, no, it's not correct. He did not come to meetings with the Prime Minister. The meetings with the Prime Minister were very few and far between, and they involved Mr. Morneau, the Bill Morneau. From the McKinsey and side, though, I'm asking. The McKinsey side is me. Okay. There's, no, no, there's no McKinsey people coming into the meetings with the Prime Minister. That, so Mr. Pickersgill was supporting you in terms of the research and analysis, he, although you're saying he wasn't attending meetings. He, he wasn't supporting. We, the Prime Minister was not in any of the Growth Council meetings. Okay. Not one. Just like Prime Minister Harper, by the way. Mr. Was not Pickersgill in was supporting the work of the Growth Council. He, Mr. Pickersgill was, was actually saying that we, I, we the, the, the committee, the whole committee, the 14 people, needed support with data. So, right. he, so he was he, supplying that? No, he, he, he provided people who supplied it. Okay. So uh, I have emails that I referred to earlier uh, where he is in the process of pitching the government on uh, work that McKinsey could do for the government, citing his work in supplying people and in otherwise supporting you for the Gro Growth Council. Um, so that is that is consistent, I think, with your with your testimony. Although you said he wasn't physically present in the meetings, I, I, it's not consistent with my testimony. I, what I said was I don't know what he was doing on that side. I you don't, don't know, know what he was doing. Emails. That's another thing you don't know. Then fair enough. Uh, that, that, I don't think that's a very fair comment. But it's something you don't know, correct? Yes. Okay. And, All right. and why should I uh, know? Okay. Uh, my, uh, I, I wanted to uh, follow up on the issue of, of uh, McKenzie's work for Purdue. Aside from what you did or did not know, um, I'd at least appreciate your opinion on one point. Uh, McKinsey has been forced to pay hundreds of millions of dollars to compensate victims of the opioid crisis in the United States. Uh, however, to date, uh, it has not paid out any compensation in Canada. Uh, do you think that Canadians who have suffered as a result of the opioid crisis should be entitled to the same compensation from McKinsey that was paid out in the United States? I think you should talk to McKinsey about that. That was a settlement in the U.S. Um, and that was a settlement because... Right, but Canadians were victims of the opioid crisis as well, right? So should, should Canadians I don't, not... I don't... I think you need to talk to, the, to McKinsey about that. You, you don't have an opinion on it, though? I mean, if, I, if I don't know the details, I don't if I don't, I don't know what role McKinsey played in that at all. I don't. Even if you didn't know about it at the time, you weren't sort of interested in reading about it afterwards to understand like 
the fact that the company you had led had been involved in causing this massive public health crisis that killed, you know, by now probably hundreds of thousands of people. Well, there, there you go again, saying that we're responsible for the entire thing, and I totally disagree with that. Well, I, I mean, I, like you paid six hundred million dollars in compensation, that implies that there was some level of responsibility, surely. I mean, people don't generally we, pay that level of compensation said, if they're we, not. We made a mistake. You, you make a calculation. What and was the I, mistake? Can, can I say, just ex explain something first? In settlements, maybe you aren't familiar with how settlements work, but there's a huge amount of litigation that could occur. We could have been in the courts in, in the U.S. government for a decade. But and what you, we decided you, to do, I'm You just said you that. made a mistake. So what was yeah, the mistake? Hang on, I just want to finish what I was saying. No, it, sir, it's my time. What was the mistake? The mistake was actually not realizing what Purdue was doing in, in the system and stop, as you said, stopping to work with that client. That's the mistake. Right. What, what, what was Purdue doing that you didn't realize they were doing? I, I, I don't have the detail on that, but my understanding is that they were playing a role in broadening the use of opioids uh, in the U.S. Right. But it was McKinsey that was advising them on how to turbocharge those those sales. I mean, that, that, it was it was turbo, turbocharging opioid turbocharging sales were were in the title of the yeah. of the project there, you did there, for them. There, there's a lot of sensational words in there. What I would sensational. What I, what, what, what I would yeah because T tell us sensational to the families who have lost no, loved I, ones, sir. I, this I, isn't I, sensational. This is real life. What I do know is in that settlement there was a there was nothing done unlawfully. Hundreds of thousands of people died as a result of the illegal misbranding and overpromotion of OxyContin. Uh, this happened in a context where McKinsey was advising Purdue on strategies to increase opioid sales and to target pharmacists that were already prescribing at higher levels. Um, you didn't know about that. You, you say something that was wrong happened, but but I, I don't know that that you know what you think was done that was wrong. I mean, what, what did McKinsey do wrong here, in your I'm view? I'm afraid we have to end on that. Mr. Genuess, uh, Ms. Thompson, please, for five. Thank you. Um, I would like to just circle back to, sorry, stay back from there, um, conversation we were having earlier, and it's, it's come up in, in some of the, um, in, in the back and forth, and, and it really is around the, the realities of, of moving into a 21st century economy, um, COVID, where a world shut down and then at the same time opened up and, and the reality of how challenging it's been. Going forward, understanding that it's probably not going to turn in the next number of years anyway into a very peaceful space where we can methodically move forward in terms of managing the rate of change. How do um, governments, for example, work um, across sectors and, and in, including consulting firms to be able to bring ex practices pre-COVID very quickly up to this very fast-paced reality of where we're finding ourselves. And, and again, back to the transparency and data piece so that we don't continue to have these same conversations without um, um, having mechanisms that, that can give us assurances that things are indeed progressing in a way that is inclusive and does yeah. ultimately allow governments to have um, workforce that's able to do much yeah. of this work. I, I think that there's a couple of aspects. One, again, is I, I go back to the training and, and reskilling people. And this is happening in companies. And you, you see the, 
training budgets in Fortune 500 companies that are just that are accelerating at a very very high rate because you you people are doing fundamentally different things. What I'm doing now will probably be very different five years from now. So how do I help do that? And they're spending a lot of money on that, and that can be internally. Again, when I was in McKinsey, other than the R and D that I talked about, our our biggest budget was training because you you have to to do it. So I think we. There has to be more resources on training the people we have to be able and recognizing that that's the case. I do think there can be private sector organizations to do that, including universities uh, that can provide very not you don't go away for a year. It's a two week program or it's a part time program. AT and T has done this, where it's a it's two hours a week and you get a medallion certification to be a digital expert if you want to do it, and it's done so you can work and learn. Right. So I we need that. I think there's a technology transformation that's needed in this government. I, I and in all governments, we, I don't want to be harsh about it, but we're in the stone age, and we've got to spend the money. People, and that that that's a lot to be able to do it. But that'll that'll enable the organization to actually do more if if we we do it. So my view, it's the training and the and the technology. I do think having people go out in and out, if, you, if I might say. I think having, uh, I think private sector people coming into government and government people going into the private sector is just a good, it's good to do to kind of broaden the mind. The other thing I always keep in mind, right, that with these changes, the average lifetime of a company in 1935, which wasn't a good year to be on the, on the, on the stock exchange, uh, was about 90 years. Uh, the average lifetime of a company today that's on that stock exchange is about 14 years. So it just shows you the the, the rate of change, and it's very difficult uh, to to keep up. And I, I think in government, you know, there's n nothing's going to replace the government. You're not going to have a new, but we have to have that mindset. And and I think that so I, I I personally, for whatever it's worth, think it's the training and the the technology. And I, and I certainly appreciate that, um, you know, you have come forward and, and, and certainly um, been quite, quite open to, to the questions, um, be it there's very direct at times. Um, is there anything that uh, you would like to put on the record um, that, that wasn't said at the end of the conversation round? If I may make a personal comment, I mean, again, I'm finding this thing quite bewildering. Uh, I'm a Canadian that wanted to give back. I've been away from my country. I want to help. I think I helped. That's why I think the Prime Minister has said those nice things about me, not because we're friends, but because of impact. I've been dedicated. I'm not trying to... And and then when I, I went to China to do that work, it was probably the most difficult professional challenge in my uh, my career. I've never had a hard, harder work. So I I feel like I've been trying to help. And then there's this scheme that I'm somehow a puppet man and I, I find that very I find it sad I found it frustrating uh, because that's not that is not who I am and and, and what I do uh, and I, I I'm it makes me sad uh, I about apologize it. Mr. I Burton say. I've been doing this a lot to you I have to cut you off again because we're going to our next uh, 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 sorry our next person which is uh, Mrs. Vanola for two and a half minutes please Bah. Yes, 
Merci beaucoup, Monsieur le Président. Thank you, Chair. I'm going to start off with some very short questions. We've heard a lot about McKinsey. With respect to McKinsey's culture, is it normal to not refer to the clients and the clients don't refer to McKinsey when they are being questioned with respect to the links or relations between them? Yeah, uh, clients prefer confidentiality because they don't want to know, let other mm -hmm. people know that McKinsey is working there. It could be working on R&D. So they, they have usually all okay. of them strict confidentiality requirements. D'accord. Right. Who do consultation, or rather consulting firms, who, so who are consulting firms accountable to when they're working for governments? Uh, they're accountable to the client. If the, so the client, the government, that, whoever that department is, Okay. The, they've made an agreement on what it is they'd be delivering, and they have to then deliver that. Donc, ils ne sont pas so they are not accountable to citizens, clients. only to their client. Yes. Merci. Thank you. Is there any accountability to partners or associates or shareholders. I'm not too sure what term to use when it comes to consulting firms, but is there any accountability to those people as well? To the shareholders of the company? Of the, of the, yeah, so, so if a company hires us, it's the management team that will evaluate what's happening. The shareholders are not, they, they aren't aware and they're not into the detail. Even the board wouldn't, uh, oh, so, so, so yes, that, that's clear to me. But the work is being done in the interest of shareholders. And so accountability to citizens isn't there uh, when it comes to the consulting firm, you said. Very, very brief answer, Mr. Barton, please. There is a similarity between the two. Because the, the departments have to have there's obviously, if they've done something right, they're going to be in difficulty because the population will be upset. Mr. Johns for two and a half, please. Thank you. Um, Prime Minister, in terms of the outsourcing, he says it's, a, it's illogical and inefficient, he, is his comments on, uh, you know, one of the contracts that, uh, that went out. And he tasked Minister uh, of Public Services and Procurement and the President of the Treasury Board to look into it. To die, take a deep dive and look at what's going on with outsourcing. So he's he's deflecting. He's not taking responsibility. Um, you're here. You haven't had answers for a lot of questions. You, you, you said, "Oh, we don't know how it works." I have a pretty good idea how it's working. It's working for consultants quite well, actually. And um, who does know? Who does know how it works? Who has the answers to the questions that well, we're asking? First thing I'd say, I'm not surprised at all that the Prime Minister, you know, what, he, he wouldn't be involved in the contracts. I said, these are done by civil servants. The Prime Minister has nothing but you to don't, do with it. you don't know either. So it seems like nobody knows, right, uh, the answers. I mean, Why obviously I you saw something. You saw a vulnerable uh, Canadian government. You know, like you, you and, and the six other big companies see something here. They see a vulnerable government. So you've created like a shadow government, right? You're, you're telling us even that there's record amounts in, in research and development in these consulting companies. 
there is a new phenomenon. You're absolutely right. The new phenomenon that's been skyrocketing out of control for a decade of outsourcing that has gone from 50 million under the Conservatives, doubled under them, gone up fourfold under this government. So I guess you, you love your country. How do we stop it? I think that the focusing on the training and the technology development in the civil services there, but I also think it's the nature of the work. Consulting firms have consultants. Uh, no kidding. Uh, they're they're subcontracting out, and they're expensive consultants charging expex expensive consultants uh, money. Like, I guess my question to you, do you actually think this is ethical? I think consulting to government is ethical. You think uh, making profits, margins, off of subcontracting, like we saw GC Strategies. These guys are making between 50 and 30%. We don't even know. They're not even sharing that information with us. They subcontracted out. These guys are making between 1.3 uh, million and 2.7 million just on the ArriveCan app. Do you think that's ethical that they, they uh, make that kind of money? Two guys don't have an office, no staff, you know, could have just two bars, at, two stools at a bar, yeah. and they're making that kind of money. And they don't, they're not even tech guys. Yeah. I, it's who you I'm know, right? I'm a, it's who you know. That's really I'm what it I'm is. I'm afraid that right? is our, uh, our time. We're going to go to uh, Mr. Uh, Paul Hoos, please, for five minutes. Merci, je partage mon temps. Thank you. I'll be sharing my time with Ms. Block. First, I want to say, Mr. Barton, you're absolutely fascinating. I mean, you were with McKinsey for 30 years, and including nine as a global managing partner, and you have no memory of what was going on. And that's rather interesting. But there's something I want to know. I want to know how it works when there are, McKinsey is providing advice to defense, a defense department, and to Lockheed Martin at the same time. Do you not see a flagrant conflict of interest? Between which companies? The Department of National Defense and Lockheed Martin, for example. You, your business was? I don't know what's going on with the Canadian contracts of McKinsey and Company, and I, I have no, I'm, okay. I'm not embarrassed about façon, that façon at all, okay. at all. And, and on va, so, on so let's take a theoretical example then. So let's say there's a Department of Defense, and there's a company, uh, a consulting firm working with them, and also with uh, Lockheed Martin. Do you think there's a problem? As there are strict walls in terms of the of information that do, do not go between, they can't. McKinsey and Company works with competitors in the industry. They, they, you have to have very strict walls in terms of who the people are that work in the in that particular industry. The not the data. Donc, mais, donc so McKinsey can be aware of everything, but the partners aren't. You're saying the the people who are employing them are not aware of the others. Thank you very much, Mr. Chair, and, and thank you um, to my colleague for splitting his time with me. Thanks. I want to follow up on some of the um, questions that my colleague MP Cousy was asking you when it comes to uh, pro bono work and the work that was pro bono um, when you were participating on the economic advisory panel or when McKinsey was. Is it common practice for McKinsey and Company to provide work pro bono? Absolutely, it is. It's a, it's a, McKinsey provides pro bono to the United Way, uh, to various different organizations. It's just part and parcel of what they do around the world. So, 
they're they're doing this pro bono work for the government for the government uh, you clarified that in its pro bono work McKinsey would not have been privy to any information um, that would have positioned them to procure future contracts if that's the case why does McKinsey do this because it's about you know giving back being a part of the society you need to you, that's what other other organizations do that too other so, corporates corporates do a lot of pro bono work um, so, so it's a it's a normal thing for corporates, all corporates, to do to provide pro bono services. So what you are, um, I guess, positing to this committee is that the fact that a consulting firm does pro bono work for a client and then ends up with some very lucrative contracts following on the heels of that pro bono work, there is no correlation between the two of them. Yeah, I think you're, you're I, I personally think you're missing the connection that to be able to get that work is a very rigorous process that is taken through. Just because you know someone doesn't mean you'll get the work. Uh, there's a, it's not about a relationship. It's a, you have to follow the criteria that are set and that includes the price, it includes your capabilities, it includes your track record. It includes references. Okay. So I, I don't see that linkage. So it's not who you know? No, it's okay. not who you know. Well, I just want to read a quote from uh, a book, When McKinsey Comes to Town. And this is quoting a senior partner from McKinsey. If there was an award for squeezing the most out of our clients, McKinsey might be the favorite to win it. A senior partner told young recruits that when he started at the firm, a McKinsey manager helped him by offering tips on building client relationships. Wedge yourself in and spread yourself like an amoeba, he said. Once in, you should spread yourself in the organization and do everything. In other words, he said, act like a Trojan horse. So you would have us believe that the work that McKinsey and company was doing um, pro bono was was very philanthropic, that they did not benefit in any way from contracts with the government of Canada because of the pro bono work that they did, that it was not about being known to the government of Canada. Yeah. I'm afraid that is uh, your time, uh, Mrs. Block, perhaps, and follow up on the next round. Mr. Housefather, for five, just briefly, colleagues, because we, we started a couple minutes late, but we've gone through very fast. We're going to have a tiny bit of time left over. So after Mr. Housefather, we'll do three minutes for the Conservatives, back to three for the Liberals, one minute for the Bloc, and one minute for Mr. Johns to bat clean up. Thanks. Go ahead, Mr. Housefather, please, for five. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. Mr. Barton, thank you for your patience today. Do you know what a corporate witness is? No. It would be a witness in a litigation who testifies on behalf of the corporation and they would be extensively prepared by the corporation's general counsel and outside counsel to come testify on behalf of the corporation. Are you a corporate witness here today? I'm not. I'm a private citizen. You're, you're an individual who no longer is related to this company, who no longer has shares in the company, who no longer works for the company, who doesn't have access to the records of the company, who hasn't been prepared to go back and look at all of the different things that might come up by employees of the company, correct? That's right. So you're relying simply on your unaided memory of things that happened years ago? Yeah. Okay. So I think just to diagnose what's happened, the goal, I think, for some was to bring you here and to find out that you were a close personal friend of the prime minister's and that the two of you had talked about giving contracts from the government of Canada to McKinsey. And when that didn't pan out, then we've started turning to attacking you and attacking McKinsey. Now, it might be that McKinsey does a lot of things that are inappropriate and, you know, that's 
neither here nor there. We'll get to it with the actual witnesses from McKinsey. Uh, for example, one of the witnesses I'd like to hear from is the chief compliance officer of McKinsey. Would you agree that that would be an appropriate person? Yeah, absolutely. Who would talk to us about whether McKinsey was or not was not respecting the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act and other acts that would be of interest to this committee across the world. Including maybe the, the good question asked about the FDA and working with Purdue, asked them. Exactly. And they would also be able to tell us what corrective actions the company has taken in order to avoid that from happening again. They would be the right person, correct? Absolutely. And not you? No. Okay. Um, and with respect to a lot, of the, a lot of the questions, again, that you've been asked, I just want to sort of having come from the corporate world myself and having been the general counsel and chief administrative officer of a company that wasn't anywhere near as large as McKinsey, we were probably about one-tenth one to one-fifteenth the size. How many overall contracts, how many overall clients in a $10 billion company did McKinsey have? Well, I don't think just take the $10 billion and divide. I mean, it's, it's but it would tens be, of it thousands. Would be, it would be 10,000 10, yeah, customers. Yeah, minimum 10,000. I mean, it's, there are 3,000 client engagements going on in every given day. And could anybody in the company, no matter who, be aware of um, all of these different clients and what was happening? No. In fact, the way it's organized is, the, is that there are practices, as I mentioned before, there are sectors. So the pharma practice is, is accountable and responsible for what they're doing, the banking practice. No one in the pharma practice knows what's going on in the banking practice. They're not interested. Uh, and, and so there's sectors that are set up. There's functions. It, that's how a, a partnership works. And that's where, again, the general counsel, the, client, the, 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 uh, the protocols that are in place to make sure that people are following that is very important. And, um, and that would normally fall under the compliance officer and the general counsel, not directly under the managing partner. That's right. And so let's say the general counsel found, for example, there was an inappropriate relationship um, such as may have existed in, 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 the, in the OxyContin case. Would he have then reported or she have then reported that to you? Yes. Um, and they, did your general counsel ever come to you and report something no. like that? No, they didn't. And for example, some of the other things that McKinsey has been accused of, let's say in the United States, working on the Trump administration's um, you know, immigration uh, what I think most of us find is a very distasteful practice with respect to asylum seekers and immigrants. Did while you were there, did this come to light, and did your general counsel come to you about this? No, I wasn't. I, that happened uh, after I was in the management team. So again, with respect, now that we've moved to a different line, which is no longer the government's inappropriate relationship with McKinsey, because that sort of seems to have disappeared. And we want to talk about whether McKinsey is or is not a company we want to do business with and whether we not want to change our rules to say that certain companies should be excluded. The right people would be the corporate witnesses who are still at McKinsey, such as the chief compliance officer, correct? Yeah, and, and the partners involved. Of course. Yeah. So I just want to thank you again for being here. I thought you were very forthright, and I appreciate your testimony, Mr. Barton. Thank you. Thank you for giving a few seconds back to the committee, Mr. House Father. We'll do our three-minute rounds. Mr. Janowitz, please. Mr. Mr. House Father has made a, a valiant attempt to, to help and defend the witness, but I do want to clarify and underline our position, which is that there are not different lines. Uh, there is the same line. Uh, the line is that uh, the witness, Mr. Barton, uh, led McKinsey uh, for about a decade and during that time, uh, McKinsey uh, was involved in myriad ethical and moral scandals around the world, 
which the witness um, appears to have been largely unaware of on his testimony. At the same time, he was uh, working with the government of Canada, advising the prime minister, and advising the prime minister on uh, a series of issues that would have had relevance to some of those same clients. Uh, the advice that he was giving uh, to the government of Canada um, would have had relevance to Chinese state-owned enterprises that McKinsey worked for, uh, private sector clients, uh, various companies uh, that were regulated by the government of Canada. Um, so it is, it is not different lines, as Mr. Housefather suggests. It's the same line. And I obviously don't hold uh, Mr. Barton uh, accountable for the current activities of McKinsey following his departure. Um, but I do think it is appropriate to hold the leader accountable for the things that his company did or didn't do, which included providing advice to Purdue Pharma, uh, advice that included paying bonuses to pharmacists for overdose deaths. And that was something that came out of the culture that existed at McKinsey, sir, while you led McKinsey. Uh, but you said you don't know about the opioid, uh, um, McKinsey's work on opioids. So let me ask you quickly a number of other questions about what you were or were not aware of. Were you aware of McKinsey's work for the Saudi government during your time at McKinsey? Yes, I was. Were you aware that that work included identifying uh, the Twitter accounts uh, of influential dissidents, providing their names uh, to the government of, uh, of Saudi Arabia, and the subsequent harassment that those people experienced? Uh, that is an allegation, and the update on that is that individual in particular went to court, sued McKinsey, and lost appealed it and lost. Yeah. So yeah. you should be careful about saying allegations it is, like that. It, you should be very careful about that. Sir, I, first of all, I'm in a parliamentary committee and you should know that. Um, but secondly, uh, Mr. Uh, Abdulaziz uh, was told by the RCMP that his safety was at risk here in Canada after a McKinsey report to the Saudi government identified three prominent Twitter accounts uh, that were negatively uh, impacting uh, perceptions of Saudi economic policy. Uh, what about that is disputed? He, he took that to court and said that... What about what showed, I just said is disputed? It's, I, it's, it's number one that, I'm afraid that the allegation... Is our time. Uh, Mr. Uh, Kuzmirchuk for three minutes, please. Well, thank you, Mr. Chair. And Mr. Byrne, I know that you didn't get a chance uh, to answer some of the questions and allegations here made by... Uh, by the MP across the way. So I just wanted to provide you with a little bit of time if you'd like to. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I believe McKinsey is a very values-driven, principled firm that has done extraordinary work in on Ebola, on MERS, on, on, in the development of the vaccines. There's a huge amount of work on, on getting youth unemployed to employment. It's a very large firm. You're picking issues, and they're right. The, uh, on the Purdue Pharma, it's a mistake. But there are many, many, many other areas where it's worked well. And the other thing I might just point out, it's interesting that today, for every position that's available in McKinsey, there are 300 people that are talented that want to join McKinsey. Point number two, McKinsey continues to grow and, join, and, and continues with clients that they're working with for repeat work and what happens. That's what I see. Number three, it's the most significant uh, leadership factory that's out there. If you look at CEOs or people running organizations, that's where it is. So there's, 
you, de you know, your definition of McKinsey is an, ex is an extreme view, and you 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 love quoting the book. There, there, that book hasn't sold. That book hasn't. Yeah, but those were the examples are coming from, and you know, there there are a lot of there there are actually some quite uh, negative views of that. That it's a very biased view. It's an anti-capitalist view. Um, that was McKinsey uh, in the center. Apparently, if you continue with that book, McKinsey resp responsible for the for the for the financial crisis. I'm surprised you haven't mentioned that because we d we invented securitization. Therefore, the financial crisis occurred. And there's too many of those lines that are made like that that I think are are actually exaggerated. Yes, McKinsey's made mistakes. It's a large firm. It's got 40,000 people. All organizations have those challenges. But if you look at the impact of what that firm has been having around the world in many different places, it's very significant. Uh, so I, I just think it's a, you're, you're coming at it from a, an extreme view, is my view. Mr. Mr. Burton, you ascribed the growth of, of the use of consultants to the fact that, especially the last two years, the fact that we were in this extraordinary time of the pandemic. But there are other forces acting upon the government right now, whether it's AI, uh, the need for uh, digital transformation, cloud computing, remote work, for example. Um, can you talk about, is there knowledge transfer that takes place whenever McKinsey or a consultant engages with a government? Yes, there there should be, and you should ask the people that come in front how they do it, and, and then ask the ask the civil servants if that actually happened. But especially if they take lean operations, that is completely about skill building. You're training people to be able to do it. Frontline people, security guards. It, it's not the top management. It's it's actually people that are lower down in the organization about new skills, and they can take that forward. So that's a thank you, Mr. Barton. Sorry. Uh, Mrs. Vanola, for one minute, please. Zach, one minute. Thank you, Chair. Quickly then, earlier, Mr. Barton, you said with respect to uh, French that you were concerned. Now, under the Century Initiative and in the Advisory Council's reports, which recommendations have to do with attaching value to French in Quebec and preserving the French language in Quebec and in Canada? Well, I think that the the focus again on the Growth Council was just on the economics. It wasn't thinking about the social context. It was a, it was on productivity. But what was said? But what was said was one of the advantages to Canada is that we are bilingual. We are multicultural and that is important to enhance that and we should be looking at and when we think about the rec the recruiting of that talent that we be thoughtful about that that we're thinking not only about France but French West Africa and other parts that was a that was it but our, no. our focus Merci. was really on the number thank you uh, thank you both of you uh, before thank you John's uh, I'm just going to intervene for a couple seconds because I think I know where mr. John's is going to go that's fine mr. Barton thank you for being with us today I just have a couple of questions I'll use chairs prerogative I wanted to follow up um, I'm going to assume that you were not threatening uh, mr. Genos a member of Parliament it sounded you were going down that step. I just want to be very clear that was not your tent. There was a question that was asked a couple times. I didn't hear, but I'm wondering if you could share with us. When you, uh, I guess when you became ambassador, you sold out your shares in McKinsey. I assume that was just for a check was cut for you. It wasn't in exchange for shares of other. It was just. Yeah. 
hadn't checked and you ended your relationship for, for, with them? Forgive me. The last thing I wanted to do was threat. It was more just a, it's a, just a general I just commentary. But that hurts for an institution to just throw words around like that. That's why I made that yeah. comment. Um, on the shares, those were, you know, the, no, I just, those shares were sold and that's it. That okay. There's no swapping on anything. Check was cut and you ended your relationship. Yep. Wonderful. Thanks very much. Mr. Johns, you have one minute. Just to get to the bottom of this uh, skyrocketing outsourcing problem, I think we need to include the, the whole $100 million plus outsourcing club and half billion dollar outsourcing club. So I move that the committee expand its study of federal government consulting contracts awarded to McKinsey and company to include government consulting contracts awarded to Deloitte, PricewaterhouseCoopers, Accenture, KPMG, and Ernst & Young by the Government of Canada or any other Crown Corporation since January 1st, 2011, examining their effectiveness, management, and operation, including the value and service received by the government, and that A, the committee hold additional meetings to receive witness testimony from those senior executives in Canada, Deloitte, PricewaterhouseCoopers, Accenture, KPMG, and Ernst and & Young, and any other witnesses the committee decides be invited, and that the parties shall each provide to the clerk of the committee by 3 p.m. Eastern on Tuesday, February 7th, 2023, their preliminary list of additional witnesses who the chair shall schedule in a manner that is fair to all parties, and B, the committee expand the orders to send for documents as stipulated in paragraph C and D of the motion adopted on January 18th, 2023, to include Deloitte, PricewaterhouseCoopers, Accenture, KPMG, and Ernst & Young, and that this order followed the same deadlines and conditions that were detailed in the motion adopted January 18th, 2023, with the reference date for the deadlines beginning on the day which this motion is adopted. Thank you, Mr. Johns. Uh, the motion is, is in order. Um, debate? I'm going to suggest perhaps uh, that we've uh, continue this on Monday at our committee and that we if there's no objections we will adjourn for now are you comfortable with that mr. Johns I am because I want it to pass thank you and the rest <laughs> minister Jastic is testifying on Monday can it we will not be during her period that, that's I was just wondering yeah. could, she, could she would she be able to go first and then discuss this oh, after her test okay thank yeah, you I'm, I'm pretty sure mr. Johns would do that <laughs> thank you colleagues uh, appreciate it we are adjourned Canada's former ambassador to China, Dominic Barton, on the hot seat at that committee. You can see right there on the screen ahead of you for two hours straight, grilled by members of parliament of all party stripes. I'll attempt to distill what came away from that committee. First of all, the committee and the members of it are asking questions about uh, contracts that were awarded by the Liberal government, by this federal government, to McKinsey and Company. McKinsey and Company was headed by Dominic Barton for almost a decade, as you heard there. Uh, he says, though, that he had no personal relationship with the Prime Minister. He didn't have his phone number, and he had no involvement in the awarding of those contracts. He served in some other capacities for this government, including as an advisor, as the chair of the Economic Advisory Council, and then, as I mentioned, as ambassador to China. He insisted many times throughout his testimony uh, that, that none of those contracts were awarded based on any kind of relationship he did or didn't have with the prime minister, though he also insists that he did not have a relationship with the prime minister. There were some other really
really uh, salient points made around McKinsey's actual uh, business practices, and we're going to get into them in a second. But the focus, of course, for uh, political watchers was around how he would or wouldn't implicate the government. And we're going to bring in the front bench to talk about if that happened. With me this evening, former chief of staff to Jim Carr, Carlene Varian. Carlene's an associate vice president with Summa Strategies. Former Alberta MLA and cabinet minister Gary Marr is here. He's the president and CEO of the Canada West Foundation. Former communications director to Jugmeet Singh, Melanie Richet, is with us as well. She's now with Ernst Cliff Strategies and the Global Mail's Ottawa bureau chief. Bob Fife is here. All have been patiently listening alongside me for the last two hours. So, so Bob, I'm going to start with you, because if the goal was to ascertain if there was some kind of nefarious relationship that led to the awarding of these contracts, what did you come away with the impression? Well, look, I don't think it was a very good day for Dominic Barton. First of all, um, we find out he says uh, he was doing this for his country when he was do acting as a dollar-a-year man. But we now find out that he was bringing along Mackenzie Canada staff who were also supposed to do stuff pro bono. And lo and behold, after that, they then start contacting the federal government and pitching them for government contracts, which probably explains why all of a sudden their contracts in 2016 go from hardly anything to over $100 million. So that is a real bad issue for the government and I, and I think for McKenzie to try to explain uh, because this looks like there's a quid pro quo here. The second thing is the unsavory nature of of, uh, of the whole of McKenzie. Uh, he, that was a he, really interesting part of the He really uh, the looked bad today. on this. I mean, he was saying that, you know, the buck doesn't stop with me. I ran this company for nine years, but the buck doesn't stop for me. When we were advising Purdue Pharma to turbocharge sales of opioids that killed tens of thousands of Americans and Canadians, he didn't know any anything about it. And then he says... I'm very sad that you were even asked me these questions. Boo-hoo-hoo. -hoo. Tell that to the families who lost people. Yeah, and uh, just one other yeah. issue. This whole disconnect between, I don't really, I'm not a friend of the prime minister. Well, the prime minister and the finance minister are on record as saying that he was their buddy. He were, they knew him very well. So there is a real disconnect here between what he's now saying and what the prime minister and Ms. Freeland are saying. Yeah, well, and we're going to piece through some of it. First on the issue of Purdue, and we'll get to that in a moment. He's, he, you're absolutely right. He said he was bewildered and saddened by the controversy around all of this, basically, but also that he said McKinsey's actions there were lawful, but a mistake. And then he was on, you know, quizzed about that fairly, uh, fair, at length, really, throughout the rest of the uh, testimony. But, but on the question of the personal relationship, first of all, before we get into like a debate over whether he established there wasn't one or whether, as Bob points out, there's some question marks there, Carleen, uh, why is that question a significant one politically? Well, it's one that the government also cares very much about in terms of how Mr. Barton were to answer it. Any time that uh, a minister or prime minister or any senior elected official is going to engage with um, any outside person, particularly somebody who... Um, is perhaps in business and has an interest in making money. They and their advisors want to be absolutely as careful as they can that this is never going to come back to burn them. That's the first question you always ask yourself when you're advising um, a minister or any other senior official on engaging in something like this. Um, and so I think that this is probably not, you know, certainly not the outcome that uh, that liberals hoped for back in 2016 um, when they were setting up this growth council. They were probably just looking for credible names who could form this council um, and actually provide some good advice. Um, I actually think that Mr. Barton successfully 
navigated that question today in, in the committee. I don't think that he left much room for doubt that there was cronyism of any kind. Um, he very much, for the first part of the committee hearing, came across as, as somebody who um, was not particularly involved in uh, the Canadian operations of, of his business, but who was called upon to serve and thought that it might be a nice thing to do and, and that that's what he did. Now, I think he lost the thread a little bit later in his testimony and we can get to that. Um, but I do think that uh, today what we heard in committee did not give anybody any conclusions uh, that are concrete by any means that there is any kind of inappropriate relationship there. Gary, I'm going to play a clip that kind of uh, signifies what both Bob and, and Carlene are talking about, kind of that initial exchange where he's like, I don't have his number and stuff like that. Let's take a listen. Would you consider yourself a friend of the Prime Minister, the current Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau? I, I, no, I, I consider myself having, no, I, I'm not a friend. I have a professional relationship. When did you I, first excuse meet? Excuse me, can I finish, Mr. Chair? Sure, I, so briefly. I, I, I respect him. I think yep. he respects me. I don't have his personal phone number okay. and I haven't been in a room alone with him. So, so, Gary, what do you think? Did this uh, kind of throw water or oil on the fire of that question around, is this cronyism? I think Mr. Barton was pretty consistent in his answer with respect to the nature of any personal relationship that he had uh, with Prime Minister Trudeau. Uh, I think he was consistent. He was not flappable in, in his answers in this regard. Uh, that the Prime Minister or Minister Morneau have, may have made something more of it um, you know, is is uh, is not actually relevant to Mr. Barton's perception as to whether or not he was a friend, and he provided some information that suggests he does not have a private, personal relationship, but that there is a professional one. And I think it's it's entirely plausible that um, you can have a professional relationship with an individual, uh, such as the Prime Minister, without it being a personal friendship. So, I think Mr. Barton was pretty consistent on that point. Um, and it, it, I guess it shouldn't come as a surprise that uh, people would want to be associated with Mr. Barton. Uh, he has an international reputation. He comes across as being very intelligent. Uh, he's clearly a well-connected individual as a result of his work with McKinsey. And it, not, it should not come as a surprise that he may have been asked to do work for both uh, the Conservative government under, you know, with... Uh, Minister Flaherty, and subsequently with a, a Liberal government under Mr. Morneau. Um, whether or not uh, anything, uh, as Bob talks about, uh, through this uh, work that is done on a pro bono basis uh, was like a Trojan horse, uh, I guess remains to be seen in terms of further testimony, but it, it's not entirely uh, you know, been demonstrated to me uh, through the testimony of Don Barton. The, the testimony took a bit of a turn and I think brings us to another set of questions, Melanie, around Mr. Barton's role as managing director of McKinsey and what happened while he was there and even since. And especially around this, and, and Bob alluded to it, and so did Carlene, around Purdue and um, the the work that McKinsey did consulting that eventually led to a court case that was settled. They, they paid a lot of money because they were accused of turbocharging basically the sales of opioids that that further contributed to um, overdose deaths be, because of because of opioids um, 
I think in this context, I mean, that's a very interesting story for sure. In this context, it's also interesting because the question that I'm not sure MPs definitely necessarily circled back to is like, why were you, once this was established and once they had made that settlement, are we still giving McKinsey contracts and using taxpayer money to do so when we know th that there is an issue when it comes to ethics. Absolutely. To your point, uh, I agree. I don't think MPs made a good enough case and tied it back to the government. They kind of just focused on um, Dominic Barton and his role in that and didn't tie it back to whether the government should or shouldn't be contracting out to a company that has that kind of um, record, especially as was pointed out a little bit earlier, that the government has said, you know, we need to tackle the opiate crisis. Uh, for a government that says it's committed to doing that, the um, disconnect between then giving contracts to a company that's been found um, to have to settle on this, on this issue, I wish MPs would have spent a little bit more time on that. And I think uh, for folks at home watching the committee today, that's kind of what I would have paid attention to. Why is our money going to, to that kind of firm? Where, where does this, I mean, he was really defensive there, Bob. We just have a few few minutes left. But where does this go from here? I, I know the committee is going to hear from other people at McKinsey. Do you think that um, they continue to try, try and essentially establish the idea that there was cronyism, even though Barton said what he has? Well, you know, I, I had originally assumed that uh, because Mr. Barton was uh, close to the prime minister or had been brought on by the prime minister and Mr. Morneau, uh, on the uh, Growth Council and then became um, our envoy to China, that government just naturally assumed that, hey, Mackenzie is really close to the prime minister. Let's give them some contracts because that's good for us in government, right? But, but then we find out that, in fact, Mackenzie Canada, which was helping him on this Growth Council, after the fact, were then uh, pr proactively trying to get government to... And give I think contracts. one consultant had named Barton he, himself, he, we heard today. He didn't yeah. name Martin himself, and, and Barton says he didn't know anything about it. Maybe he didn't. But had invoked, like, a relationship in an email. But I, I think the MPs are going to have to focus on, they're going to have to call Mackenzie Canada and say, you worked on the Growth Council, apparently pro bono, and then you turned around and pitched the government for contracts. That's, I think, a legitimate area for... Uh, MPs to be able to investigate. And, and I wonder maybe it, the larger questions around why McKinsey, why so much outsourcing? Because it does feel a little bit like if you're trying to say this stuff was thrown McKinsey's way because Dominic Barton is a great buddy, it's, it's, hard, it's a little bit harder to make that argument today, Carlene. Dominic Barton sort of said politely today without saying so, I think, in his responses um, that I ran a global company the money we made in Canada was nowhere near important enough for me to pay any attention to, um, much, as, much as we'd like to think otherwise, perhaps as Canadians. Um, so I think that what this committee hearing has revealed for those of us who are watching, as well as for Canadians and for MPs, is really that the question that we want to be asking ourselves is not necessarily whether there were untoward arrangements between political leaders and people at the top of companies necessarily, um, but perhaps what the broader implications can be for a business uh, that does do work pro bono for a government and how they may use that to make representations for the government or to the government for future contracts. And that's a fair question that the committee should probably explore in a little more detail. They should probably hear from Public Services and Procurement Canada to talk about what some of those processes are um, and hear from consulting firms as well about how they go about their business. Hey, Gary, you had talked about this in the lead up to, uh, to the appearance by Mr. Burton. And, and I should say, we're just kind of standing by to see if he'll talk to reporters as he leaves that committee appearance. 
Uh, do, do you, when you think about those questions prior to the committee appearance and, and now that you've heard Mr. Barton, where, where would you head next? Well, I, you know, I think that uh, one of the things that uh, Mr. Barton successfully did, in my view, was try and put McKinsey in the context of a whole host of other uh, outsourcing of contracts. Uh, the growth of the number of contracts has grown dramatically from 2015 to the current year. Um, I think it was reflected in the uh, motion that was made by Mr. Johns at the end of the uh, end of the committee to sort of uh, want to investigate other, um, you know, consulting firms and what they're doing. And, you know, I think these are good questions for uh, for the committee to be asking if if they can provide something that's tangible uh, that goes to, you know, PSPC, uh, you know, the procurement uh, uh, procurement Canada. Uh, that yields, you know, uh, better rules with respect to who you should contract with, what the terms of those contracts are, um, you know, the uh, thorough investigation of all potential conflicts. We have seen uh, a couple of ministers uh, get in trouble for issuing sole sauce contracts for communications to uh, close friends of theirs, people that, you know, they socialize with. Um, those are uh, those are all legitimate uh, legitimate uh, subject matters for this committee to be looking at. Some some statistics that um, to add to this part of the conversation. I mean, I, I know a lot of the questions were around also, should you be outsourcing so much? Under under this government, outsourcing has uh, increased, I think, since 2015. I think the Globe Bob was first to report 74% over that period. Um, there also has been an expansion at the same time, though, of the public service, which kind of adds a layer of complexity to the to the political back and forth about it. Um, I think it's been about 6.7% growth over each of the seven years that the government has been in power of the public service as well, uh, Melanie. We've listened to the political debate through the House of Commons in the past few days around this, which has basically boiled down to, uh, you know, the Conservatives accusing the Liberals of, and the NDP to a certain extent as well, of helping out their friends at the expense of addressing the issues that ordinary Canadians are facing. Do you think after today, the argument stays the same, that the, the, the back and forth stays the same, or, or does it evolve? I, I think it needs to evolve a little bit. I think the goal of today was definitely to try to point to, well, here's the Liberals once again, like we saw with SNC-Lavalin, with other stuff that they're working for their well-connected insiders instead of working for you. I don't know that that was established today. I don't think in a credible way that folks can continue this narrative. Um, I do think where Sorry, I'm just I'm going to pause for a second yeah. again. My apologies. That always happens to you. But uh, okay. Mr. Barton is actually walking up to the microphone to take questions from reporters. So we're going to listen in live to those. Twenty to twenty-one. Right. I wasn't um, even in the system. That's okay. In twenty to twenty-one, I was the ambassador to China and had nothing to do with anything on that front. And I think again, the point I was trying to make in there a number of points. One, there was no special relationship between me and the Prime Minister to do things, none, not, nothing like that. Two, all of the contracts that were done had to go through a process which is run by civil servants. It's not done by the political class. And I had no idea which, what those contracts were. You need to talk to the teams that were there and where it was. But I think this kind of fiction that there's some scheme going on is uh, is just not the case. So I hope that was clear. I, I'm, I'm going to have to Were you surprised we called to testify? No, I, on that one, can I say I... I heard about everything that was going on, and I actually proactively wrote to the clerk and said, I heard my name is in there. I'm willing to come and speak. 
Um, and I, so I, because what I was worried, maybe they're going to send it, I don't know where they're going to send it to, but I proactively sent a note in because I think it's important to be in person to show respect, even if, if it's challenging to go through it. I think it's the right thing to do. Did you come from London to be here? I, I came from Africa, Nairobi. Did you think the committee was actually trying to get to the bottom of this, or was this just a question, sir? That's Dominic Barton emerging from his committee appearance to take a few questions from reporters, telling them that he, in fact, flew from Nairobi, I think he said, uh, in order to make the uh, make the appearance there and sort of reiterating his central thesis that he put forward at the outset of that committee, which is that there was, he contends, no special relationship he had with the prime minister in any way. Uh, and that he also says that the contracts that were awarded to McKinsey and company underwent a specific process that involved the public service, not political figures. Um, so, uh, Carlene, that's essentially like, you know, he's repeating what he said off the yeah. top. Again, I'll pose a similar question. I'll get Bob in on this in a second as well. If we, if we have listened to what the uh, Liberals have been accused of, which is very much associated with their relationship to him, um, if he insists this is the case, do specifically, I guess, the Conservatives move away from that and focus on the questions that Bob has raised and also the wider questions around why a company like McKinsey or why this much, much outsourcing at all? I think that's very much where this is going. Um, if I'm looking for anything in what Dominic Barton testified today that could be made into a headline that made the Liberals look bad or unethical in terms of why they would have uh, perhaps been involved in giving contracts to McKinsey that it wouldn't have otherwise got due to the work that Mr. Barton did, I don't think I saw anything or heard anything of that nature. Um, if the opposition parties still want to use this as an opportunity to score some political points, I think they have far more to work with on the question of what should we as Canadians expect from the companies that we contract uh, from the federal government? What types of unsavory business are we comfortable with our, our contractors being involved in at the same time as they're doing work for the federal government and for taxpayers? And and what's, what's the line in the sand where we say, no, we don't want to be working with those folks? I, I feel like I get it from a, a Bob, like a theoretical sense that that's where things would move. But the the, the lines have been fir firmly drawn, to echo what some of us said in, in committee. The Conservatives have been effective, really, the past few days at saying, you help your friends and, and you don't help ordinary Canadians. Well, look, this is raw politics going on here. Uh, the Conservatives um, are trying to make mincemeat out of the Liberals on the economy, on inflation, and the the effect this is having on working people, and they can point to a guy like Mr. Barton, who is a very wealthy guy, who is very elitist in a lot of ways, and can say, look, this is another instance of liberals rewarding their friends. And whether they like it, the liberals may not like it, but there is a problem here. If Mr. Barton was setting up doing a $1 a year job for the government, and he was bringing along Mackenzie Canada officials, and they then turned around and pitched the government for money, that smells. And I think that they will look at that. And then there's the whole unsavory aspect of this company that was involved in sales of opioids that killed people, the involvement of this company working for uh, Chinese state-owned companies that built the islands in the South China Sea. There are a lot of problems with this. They're going to make the Liberals very uncomfortable if the, with the Conservatives going after them on this. 
I, I'm going to just play a clip right now of, um, of Mr. Barton on those questions around the company itself, specifically around uh, the work they did with Purdue and the lawsuit that was settled uh, over uh, opioids and turbocharging the sales of them. Have a listen to, to that exchange. The work was lawful. The, the work was lawful, but it obviously fell far short of the standards of what we did. And so I'm, I'm, I've, I've acknowledged that I feel, didn't I just say, I, I feel very badly about that. We shouldn't have done it. But I think there's a difference between that issue, which is a mistake, and saying that we were the architect uh, of, of a broader program. Gary, uh, Mr. Barton was sure of himself at the outset of that committee, certainly around questions about his own relationship with the Prime Minister and the awarding of those contracts and the process in place. Uh, what was your sense of how he handled bigger questions about the company he headed up? Well, uh, I think he was a bit evasive on it. Uh, I guess if I, taking that one clip that you just uh, played, I, the headline could be, it was awful, but it was lawful. I mean, I think it's important yeah. that Again, we, we look at, you know, the, uh, the procurement process, and it's not just for this. It would, you know, we wonder about why procurement has been so poor in getting F-35s or boats in the water or yeah. submarines or uh, any one of a number of or different Phoenix, areas yeah. of procurement. Yeah, Phoenix uh, would be another example. Um, you know, there, there are some probative questions that need to be asked about the process itself that allows this to happen. And I think that's what the committee should be drilling down on as they uh, as they bring on more witnesses uh, to talk about how these processes go. Mr. Barton talked about how they were, you know, um, competitive, competitive bids. That wasn't always the case. Um, but if you give a sole source contract because somebody's got something proprietary uh, or something unique in terms of a skill set that is not found elsewhere, then you better be able to disclose that and be, better be able to defend that as a government to say there's a reason why this was done as a sole source contract. And just really quickly, because you've been, you know, in, in cabinet, you've, you know, uh, strategized politically. Do you think the conservatives deviate from the lines of attack over the past few days and few weeks? Well, I think that there's a, a bigger fish to be fried. And that's, uh, again, the overall system of procurement. Uh, Dominic Barton uh, didn't give them a lot. He was, uh, he was careful. I think he, was, he had prepared himself well. I mean, one of the, one of the uh, committee members asked if he was a, a corporate witness. He was not. But if not prepared by McKinsey, he was certainly prepared well either by himself or, or by legal counsel to be careful about um, you know, what he spoke about. He tried his best to be consistent, unflappable. Um, and, um, you know, and not argumentative uh, by and large. And I think that uh, that makes him, uh, from a lawyer's point of view, a, a reasonably good witness to, uh, on behalf of himself. Now, can he answer the questions about um, McKinsey at large and, and the, the larger questions that were asked about their conduct and the night types of contracts that they've engaged in elsewhere? He, he was evasive on those, uh, on those questions, and I think the committee's noted that, but... Um, there's, uh, there are larger issues in the overall procurement system within Canada. I want to head back to that committee room briefly because my colleague Kevin Gallagher was inside the room for that testimony and has been uh, covering the issue for us. Hi, Kevin. I just have a few minutes, uh, two minutes left, actually, exactly. I just wanted to get a sense from you of what it was like in there. 
Uh, you know, what it was like, for, frankly, was uh, a, the back and forth was quite interesting to watch, especially between the conservative MPs and Mr. Barton, uh, as well as, uh, you know, Gord Johns, the NDP MP, and as well we had, you know, uh, the Bloc Québécois asking questions, but all seemed to have their sort of different tact. Of course, the conservatives looking to try and paint Mr. Barton as a friend of Mr. Trudeau. Uh, you know, Dominic Barton started making it clear, no, we're business associates, not friends. Uh, and, you know, uh, Tough as that might be to believe for the conservatives, it seems, especially when they sort of read, read back certain statements that uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau had said about Dominic Barton, which were quite glowing and complimentary of him. Uh, but Mr. Barton, of course, saying, well, you know, that doesn't necessarily make us friends uh, beyond just sort of some of the work that McKinsey had done. So certainly I think that there was a lot of look for a smoking gun and there might just be smoke left in the room, Vashi. We shall see. Okay, I'll leave it there. Kevin, thanks very much for your report. The CTV's, uh, CTV's rather, Kevin Gallagher. Uh, just a quick final thought. I guess I have, I have less than a minute. Uh, Bob, I'll give the floor to you for a second. I know you've been covering this extensively. Your, your, where your eyes are next. Well, I, I think that the, um, the opposition parties are going to have to call in Mackenzie Canada right. and try to dig down on what they did uh, after the, after they did the, the the work for the government on right. a pro bono basis, and you got to remember, civil servants are going to be if they're pitching them and they're saying, by the way, we work right. for the Economic Council, we'd like this contract. If you're a civil servant, you think they're really close to the prime minister. This was very well, important to them. Right. Maybe we I, better give them a contract. Okay, That's the kind of thing we're going to have to see. Okay, but to Gary's larger point... I, I got to go. I'm sorry. The yeah. show's about to end. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll be back tomorrow, yeah. I'm sure. Bob Fife, <laughs> Carleen Verai, and Melanie Richet and Gary Marr, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. That does it for Power Play. I'll hand things over to my colleague, Heather Butts. Have a great evening.